I loved it. I fell in love with this movie. Why? I don't fucking know. the weird scenes inside the gold mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in a world of cult entertainment. Tonight, we're going to be talking crime a la Francais on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Welcome to the, oh, jeez, I don't even know. Uh, it might be like the fifth or sixth Two, episode. The 2,000th episode. Pretty much. We're definitely in the hundreds now, the 110s or something. The 13th season of Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tonight... The French crime film is different from those of other countries for several reasons. While some, certainly Jean Delanois Soleil de Voyeux, aka Action Man, draw elements from the German Creamy, which we did a whole show on, two if you count the George Nader Jerry Cotton films, and even the serial, particularly those of Feuillard, whose Fantomas and Les Vampires are strangely gripping and action-packed for fond de seek silent cinema, the overarching vibe is less that of contemporaneous American crime films or Italian poliziotecci than it is, as you might expect from the nation that coined the term, the American film noir and gangster pictures of the late 30s and 40s. Like how the British are the only people to truly venerate and properly comprehensively reissue American funk, R&B, and early hip-hop to CD, where we don't seem to give a shit or do so haphazardly with our own culture and history, the French not only paid attention to the forgotten and denigrated B-pictures of our past, but elevated them to popular and critical prominence. And as with the idiosyncratic and often groundbreaking critics-turned-directors of the Nouvelle Vague, the French crime films pays less strict homage to than integrates the driving elements and visual aesthetic of American noir in a more contemporary sense, improving and updating them to something more suited and appealing to a modern audience. I've been enjoying several of these films as odd one-offs for years, before building enough of a de facto collection I realized that all these disparate films were in fact integrally connected, and in fact representative of a larger genre of cinema all their own, hence the show. Now, we had done previously shows on French cult cinema, Bardot films, and more to the point, the early work of Max Picus and the films of Eddie Constantine previously, so we won't discuss those tonight. But we will be revisiting and reassessing relevant films from both Tony Perkins and Charles Bronson, who we just done shows on recently, at least in Tony's case, as well as several Jean-Pierre Melville works among the ones we discussed tonight, plus a number of works involving folks like Jean-Paul Belmondo, apprehending specifically to the French crime milieu. We'd done a Eurospy show, we'd spoke to things like Le Magnifique and a Jackie Bissett show, for instance. So that's where we're going to go tonight. I, again, am Doc Savage, and with me is Mr. Lewis Paul. Hey, Mr. Lewis Paul, how are you doing? <laughs> hey, Mr. Lewis Paul. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really so familiar with this, but not in a very long time, with this genre. Because Mike Brainy, the late Mike Brainy from Something Weird Video, we... we <laughs> We had a great relationship for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And he he knew, because like when I used to publish a fanzine back in the mid-80s to early 90s, well, it was a long run too, mm-hmm. Blood Times. Cheesy name, but it's got some, I don't know, I see people posting Blood Times issues on, their, <laughs> on Facebook pages. I'm like, this was a great issue. I'm like, thank you. Oh, you're still alive. I'm like, you're on my friends list. Of course I'm still alive. Um, uh, 
So Mike Brady from something weird video, you know, he, he used to go into warehouses, vaults, and just empty it out, you know, pay whatever and get all these uh, 16 millimeter pictures, reels. And a lot of times they were intended to be shown on television, American television. Mm -hmm. But more often than not, somebody's never made it. And some of them contain still nudity. They just happen to be dubbed into English. You know, well, Mike's intent to put them out. So he sent me boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes <laughs> of stuff. No artwork at the time, just cassettes, because he just transferred them from the 16s. Mm. And so many, you know, remember, there was no internet <laughs> like it is today. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't work at Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center, mm -hmm. I would have been fucked. <laughs> so I had to watch all these things. Then like, yeah, and also they anglicized, just like in Italian films, a lot of names. But like, I, there was somebody enough recognizable. Mm -hmm. So I had so many of these things. And then what I, the write-up I would do would be on the back of the uh, VHS. Yes, remember VHS. Mm -hmm. Something weird VHS boxes. I would do a little blurb, mm -hmm. and they would put that in the catalog, and it would be on the front, but the back was like, as much as I could find out, like about the original film, what the title was, mm -hmm. what it's about, which means you had to sit through. Well, a lot of these like an hour and 40 minutes for some strange reason. The French love an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> a lot of them seem the clock in around that time. Um, some are quite good. A lot of them seem to cross Germany into the heist genre, which we're going to mention a lot tonight. I guess. Yes. Uh, having seen the list of titles they threw at me. And I enjoyed a lot of them. You know, uh, a lot of familiar faces, very few times where they're, you know, the Italians used the occasional American actor. I know the first picture we're going to talk about has one, but mm -hmm. more often than not, the French didn't yeah. do that. And uh, Well, it was the same as with the German Creamy, which we did a show on. Mostly that was people like, you know, Heinz Straka and Hoking Fuchsberger and Gert Froba right. and you know, Klaus Kinski, you know, who we did a show on as well as opposed to bringing in people from elsewhere, like the Italians tended to do. They brought in the name from Marquis Value. The Spanish did that. A lot of people did that over right, there. Right, the Spanish did But not so much the Germans and the French, especially not the French. So it's a very interesting, the French crime thriller, and you know what? Mm -hmm. A lot of these movies we're going to discuss wound up being co-productions, too, mm -hmm. with Italy. Yes. Or Spain. Yep. So uh, the movie we're starting out with tonight runs exactly one hour and 40 minutes. <laughs> Oh, and I should also mention, just you brought these things up, you were talking about Mike Rainey, and obviously I had done a uh, career-spanning interview of talking about uh, something weird in his history and uh, all the many different kinds of releases that he championed, and people like Dave Friedman and Horst Gordon Lewis, and all the people he had relationships with, with Mike Rainey before he had passed, and uh, that's over there at Third Eye Cinema, if you want to check those podcasts out. It was much praised at the time, and I still see it referenced and praised on the internet a lot of places. I know Mike and Lisa continue to thank me for that interview, so it was a big deal. And there was really nobody else talking to him at that time, which, you know, of course he had passed not long afterwards, so it's uh, kind of a goldmine if anybody was interested in that stuff. And we'd also, when you mentioned about you doing the backs, I know we discussed that at least during our Eurospy show, because I remember I was busting you because some of the plots, not 100% the way it was written, because I know how it was back in those days. You're dealing with VHS, you're kind of guessing, like you said, there's no internet, you're looking up like, I think this is who this is, and whatever, so. Well, but no, did, but your name popped up a lot when it came to Eurospy and things like that, as opposed to, you know, like Fred Henry and Lauder would come up on a lot of horror things or, you know, whatever they had, different people well, they went to. Yeah, I mean, in defense, I did watch every single thing. Oh, yeah. I was doing, and I did take notes. But then, you know, again, this is like 
These are wood shedding days. Yeah, it's like the Stone Age <laughs> compared to nowadays. Stone Age, yeah. It's like um, it was beyond just knowing your shit like we both do. It was like, wow, if, if you didn't have the right piece of information, some of those old books that I used to reference, you know, the Donald Peary books and things like that, they're not always accurate. You look through this stuff and like. Well, what? And how'd you miss this person being there? Or what's this weird title you got for this? You know, whatever it is. If something is always, you'll find a whole bunch of things in there that are errors. Because that was how it was back then. We were kind of guessing, feeling our way around. And... The beloved Phil Hardy, horrible. Right. There are some things in there. Because nobody knew. There's no way to get this information. Yeah, Phil Hardy did a crime book. I didn't yeah. even know that. I have the sci-fi and horror ones. Yeah. I know he did a Western one, too. He did He did a crime book, which, uh, crime, crime thrillers, and, you know, features a lot of the stuff we're, we're going to be talking about. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even notice it existed. I was at a, for some reason, New York Public Library liked to do these, what did they call them? Retrospectives? Like no, that. not rummage sales. They just sold shit. <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't even know this book was in the collection. No, it's not. Somebody donated it. But it's not in the collection. <laughs> no, we don't want to catalog it. We're going to put it out there for $5. Sold. Mm-hmm. And it's like the Phil Hardy hardcover horror book. It's this big, thick book uh, all about Eurocrime. I'm like, holy shit. I got that thing. I used to reference it. I used to go down to uh, the Walmarts. <laughs> When I was like a teenager, and just go there and read through this thing because it was too expensive for me. And then years later, when I got to be like, you know, in my 20s or whatever the hell, or early 20s, mm-hmm. I went there with my drummer and I'm like, I wonder if the fucking book's still here because I always reference this thing, but it's been there for years. You know, by then it was like several years past. And sure enough, I found the copy hiding up there on like a high shelf. So I bought it right away. And I have that original copy still to this day. I used to reference that thing like crazy. Yeah, the binding shot, of course. In the yes, party. of course. <laughs> but it was the essential reference book for that stuff back then. Nothing else was even close. Oh, yeah, it still is, despite its, uh, you know, and stuff is coming mm-hmm. out. Oh, yeah. No, and I'm not really knocking these people because we did, the, anybody back then, we did incredible research. It's just, it wasn't out there, especially in a different language, in different countries. Yeah, but you're right, though. If you, if you, <laughs> I see it too. Like sometimes, if you throw in a certain title, my name yep. comes up. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> I had a bunch of them from Lisa, and I was like, yeah, "There he is again." <laughs> and it was always, always, always heist films, Euro spy. I don't think he did anything else hardly. A couple of French crime things, you know, <laughs> like Max Pekus, for example. Well, yeah. That's, yeah, because uh, you know, he, he thought I was in the, knowing where I work, which is how I work for Michael Weldon too. Mm-hmm. No, which is another story. <laughs> Knowing where where I work, people like, if anybody can find this information out, you can. (laughs) I'm like, but you get to keep the movie, you know, but after a while... And the best part about this stuff was, even if you said, okay, well, this country doesn't know about it because it's from another country. If you had sources in their own countries, this stuff is all denigrated. People don't realize how good we got it now in that respect. Because up until the mid-90s, late-90s, when the DVD revolution came about... Even like the horror films, when you went to video stores, they were all under wrong titles. They didn't yeah, have any information on the back. You know, they you know changed the title card so you didn't know who was in the cast. You didn't know who directed it. And it was like, <laughs> you know, their own countries. And people were just like, this is crap. I, I want to forget it ever existed. People that were in it that nowadays you would see it, you know, shows like Schiller, didn't want to admit that they ever did these films. It was like, oh, yeah, I was in some crappy horror film. I don't yeah, know. You yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. I took my top off. You know, nobody wants to see that stuff. I don't want to talk about it. It didn't well, happen. Michael <laughs> My brain, he was such a, was such a sweetheart. Stone was such a sweetheart. <laughs> uh, when I used to see him in person, he's like, dude, wow. He's like, do you want to have a joint? No, no, you smoke, I have a cigarette. 
Um, <laughs> um, yeah, every time I saw him there, he was stoned to your right. <laughs> little did I know, I feel the pain too a lot toward, toward the end. He was really nice because you're like, Mike, this is a lot of movies. <laughs> you know, I know you want a quick turnaround as much as possible because you want to put these out and make money. Yeah. Do me a favor, throw in, throw in some of your sleazy fucking... <laughs> Dragonorth Theater, me, Bucky Beaver. Yeah, yeah, send me the blue book. Uh, uh, give me some Bucky Beaver things, you know, <laughs> which I'll keep. I mean, I get to keep, I got to keep everything. I don't have any of that stuff anymore. <laughs> well, problem with a lot of the, I don't know, there's something about the way they reproduce them. A lot of those discs don't play anymore. They're locked up, like, partway through. I'm like, oh, no, it's a VHS. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> that far back. I remember having a couple of those. And I used to, I used to have, back in the day, I used to have like eight VHS machines. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that was cool. Well, that's because you were running the uh, the gray market business there, just like a lot of people were doing. There's <laughs> a reason. Um, one, one day, we may have discussed this years and years ago, mm-hmm. but there was a reason, because I, I never was out to make money. You can't make money when, back in those days, a blank video cassette. Oh, it was like six bucks and up. Well, no, they were much, but they were about 14 in the beginning. Mm. How are you going to make money? Yeah, that's true. It was all about trading. trading getting trading, different stuff you hadn't seen trading. before from somebody else in exchange, yep. And what happens is, you know, quickly, or, <laughs> this is going to be a long show. <laughs> what happens is, uh, well, it kind of, yeah, it should, it should be mentioned, and you could probably keep it in, because mm-hmm. this is how this stuff got Found it out by oh yeah people. I mean there's no way if you didn't have out. Mike and Tower Records and his deal with them none of this stuff would have yeah. existed and I mean in the city or you know in the domestic situations you know L A wherever the hell you were if there was a Tower Records there and you went to the video section that's how this stuff got proliferated otherwise nobody would fucking know and then you had early companies with DVD like Anchor Bay and even before that with VHS oh, wait, they were putting out their Euroshock yeah. collections or Image you know. That's how people got into this shit. And all of a sudden, it's like, ooh, Italian horror. Ooh, Euro horror. Ooh, whatever. Uh, yeah, you know? and, and the, thing with, the thing with this was there was a, at the first, a lot of the fanzine publishers were secret collectors. Mm-hmm. You know, I collected. I collected. I got stuff from Mike, you know, and Mike, Mike didn't put everything out either. Mm-hmm. So I got stuff from Mike, and I got stuff from uh, Craig Ledbetter. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was putting out ETC, but Craig didn't have a video thing at the time. And Kevin Clement, of all people, from Chiller Theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had his own labels. Huh? And he, uh, who was that guy in Florida, Video Search in Miami? And, video, uh, this is before Video Search. And then okay. there was a guy. Because he's the one that brought Roland to everybody's attention. There was a guy in uh, the lower uh, West Village mm-hmm. who had tons of. Oh, Kim's? No, not Kim's. This is before Kim's. Wow was a guy in the West Village who had a, who had a store and he had some comics and had tons of, of VHS. Most of, them, most of them were dubbed off of early TBS with the commercials cut out. And, uh, mm-hmm. I know back in the day we used to deal with uh, Midnight Media yeah, or Midnight, Midnight Video. I forget what the hall was. But, you know, Video, one of great right, yeah. Video Screams. <laughs> you know, those places I don't know if they even yeah, exist anymore. It was the anymore. one in uh, Pennsylvania or uh, some such place. Mm-hmm. There was a big store, video, something. And who was that fellow, Onar Films, who used to put out the Turkish ones, but then he died and the deals all disappeared? Well, yeah. But again, that was much later, too. Luminous? Luminous? He died. Did you know? No, I didn't know. I thought he was kind of a jerk when I had to deal with him, honestly. His prices were bad. Well, I shared it about three weeks ago. I didn't know I had no idea he passed, though. I, yeah, it's somebody, somebody, I don't know, you know. 
we were super tight and then not. Mm-hmm. And then I never, never heard from him. And I heard he moved to Florida, okay. I think. And he got very sick with uh, COVID? cancer. Oh, cancer. And, um, you said Florida instantly think COVID because they're all morons down there. Oh, we don't believe in this. And then they're all dead. <laughs> and somebody who claimed to have been in closer contact with him in his last few years, and then nothing, Zippo, mm-hmm. posted some uh, pictures that looked like him, but very thin from the past five years. Mm-hmm. And and said he liked Italian cars. And then I commented on that guy saying, like, I spent a couple of weekends with him at his place in Long Island. Mm-hmm. He had many Italian police cars <laughs> in, in, on his property. And we used to drive around in them. Wow. And one of the things, that was Fred Fell. And, and, and one of the things was when Fred Fell was, if another guy had an Italian police car, how random is that? Mm-hmm. Driving around. They fucking stop each other at a stoplight. You got one too. <laughs> <laughs> you talking about the little ones that look almost like the uh, the old British ones used to be? The, they're almost like a smart car. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they were Italian police cars. They were just you know you you couldn't have the yeah you can't have the siren or whatever the hell on it and, uh, yeah. and uh, they take out all the shocks and all that special stuff. And I remember a couple of times he he said you want to go on an adventure I'm like sure <laughs> and we get on a fucking ferry we went to Fire Island. Mm-hmm. I had a great time. No, not. I was going to say, Fire Island no, had a great no, time, no. huh? <laughs> no, he knew where the, where the breweries were. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, it was nice. And when we went to Connecticut from Long Island, mm-hmm. and he says, we're going to go to a picnic, barbecue, and collector's car, Italian collector's car thing at somebody. And it was like rich people. Yeah, of course. I'm like, I only brought clothes for the weekend, you know, like, is this okay? You know, very nice people, and you saw these cars, like, I saw, like, a John Steed car from the Avengers, you know, I saw this car, and I'm like, that's a Rolls Royce. <laughs> it was really cool. Mm-hmm. He he got mad at me because I was on the last edges of my ex-wife. Mm-hmm. He said, don't talk to her. You know, she moved out. Yeah. Why are you bothering? It's killing you. I'm like, yeah, I know, but you know. And, you know, he tried to help me, and I didn't listen like an idiot. Yeah. And then, yeah, I guess at some point some people, like, step back. Yeah, that happened to me with a friend of mine because, you know, I tried, and he just actually got angry at me. He would, not only wouldn't listen, but he, like, got hostile. I'm like, all right, well, whatever, fuck you. And we didn't talk for years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the thing was, he was right the whole time. Yeah. Well, that's what he came back later and said. That's what we reconciled. I was like, yeah, man. I was like, you know, you were right all along. Like, well, you know, whatever. You know, the, the, who cares? Spilled milk. But, <laughs> but yeah, he closed up his business. He disappeared, disappeared off the face of the earth. And then a couple of weeks ago, somebody posted that he had passed. And I'm like, wow, I had no idea he was even around. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, again, that's, you know, the tape training thing. So what would happen was... If you review this obscure film in your fanzine, somebody's like, did you see this? Mm-hmm. Oh, no. <laughs> they, they were write you letters. <laughs> there was no room today. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm like, well, I have it in my collection. I got it from a friend. Can I get one? You, at first, yeah, it was no biggie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, make a copy. But then, you know, my subscription list grew for my fanzine. You know, I'm like, I can't keep toners. <laughs> my, my, my wife at that time, that was wife 1.2, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she's like, why are you doing this? <laughs> look look how much it cost you for the blanket set. Mm-hmm. And then to mail it because they were heavy. And mail it. 
And then your time running off this two hour, you know, those are real time movies back then. Yep. You know, real time, the early VB, uh, VHS recorders. Were yeah, real. they didn't have high speed dub or nothing, yeah. And so, like, yeah, you're right. So then I have this little thing, like, let me find the best. Like, I don't care what quality this movie is, I need to see it. And that's <laughs> why this thing snowballed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I would be a nice guy, I'm like, quality sphere, best 12 bucks. Mm-hmm. Most of that is covering the tape and the postage, 12 bucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But guys like you mentioned before, Video Search in Miami. Oh, God, that fucker went like $33 for those Rolands. Like, fuck you. And then he wanted, a, he wanted a membership fee. Remember that? Oh, God, yeah. He wanted to belong to this, to get the right to belong to this special club, your membership <laughs> fee. And then he wanted like $25, $30 for a dub, which... I'll tell you about Tom Weiser. He's a fucking dick. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you something. And then, you know, I don't know how it ended with him and Craig, because some people made it sound when Craig led better past that they, they had no dealings for a long time. That's not true. Mm-hmm. They were still together for a bit. The thing with Weiser was he would see if you had something wanted. Mm-hmm. And then he said, what do I have? We have a lot of stuff, obviously. Yeah. You know, I'll send you these five. You send me those five. And then the stuff I would get would be wretched looking. <laughs> Even his Roland prints were pretty shitty. And he was exclusive. Remember, he cut an exclusive deal with Jean Roland for a while? But allegedly, yes. I knew exclusive. And, and, you know, well, that's right. why I went to video screens, because they would give you cheap copies of the same shit. I'm like, I don't care if it's a little less quality. It's only 10 bucks with you guys. Well, Craig was the one that told me that what he was doing was he was dubbing all these things to six and eight hour speed, which mm-hmm. was called SLP at the time. Right. And so if you had a, a two-hour video cassette, you could make it six hours, SLP. If you had a two-hour and 40-minute cassette, it would be eight hours, mm-hmm. SLP. EP, they called that one, EP, I think. EP, yeah. EP, you're right. SLP was the four The middle hour. one, right. Mm-hmm. The middle one. And so his vast library, which is probably God knows how many tapes, but mm-hmm. I'm like, you're already getting these from somebody else, mm-hmm. and you're dumbing them down, and yep. then you're selling them for blackmail yep. price. That's why I bought one thing from him ever and it was with somebody else. Same thing with Midnight Video. I only got like two or three things. And it was mostly because my drummer or my buddy there, Steve, wanted something and we like throw in and I, I was kind of finagle so they'd pay a little more. <laughs> but basically, you know, we'd split on these things. And I will say this, Midnight put out pristine quads. They were like you know, what Criterion used to be, or nowadays you see people like Arrow doing, where it was like, if you want a really good print, you went to them. But it was too damn expensive. So I was always going to the cheapy guys, like, eh, fine, you know, 10 bucks. Donald, Far- Donald Farmer had one, too. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. I forgot what it was called. I think I dealt with him, too. It was a couple of people. Yeah, so, yeah, it, that's, so that is how, around roundabout, that is how... <laughs> I still can't get over you saying you had a great time of fire around. I'm thinking of the Village People song. Don't go in the bushes. Something might stab you. Something might grab you. <laughs> don't say, don't tell. Um, no, nothing like that. <laughs> there were nice people out there. <laughs> there was something we saw. Maybe it was that... Oh, God. Remember Vinegar Syndrome was putting out those things? There's a gay director. that was He was a porn director. I forget the hell what his name was. And they were put out a couple of his films. And I'm like, 
you really gotta watch this or whatever. So I kind of like flipped through. I was like, yeah, you know, if you don't, you know, if you ignore the like these close-on parts, like they weren't bad for this kind of films because he actually had like a plot and tried to be somewhat aesthetic. But in the end, they had these big extras. And I remember one of them, they were talking to some guys on Fire Island. And, and I mentioned in the review I put up, I was like, well, you know, there's some nice guys over there. <laughs> they talked about Fire Island you know, and they spread. <laughs> what was that, Fred Halstead? I don't remember the guy's name. I, all I know is I remember I mentioned his name to uh, my second chiropractor. I, I had like two gay chiropractors. One like, you know, went and did something. Mm-hmm. And I went to the second one. And that's actually the one I recommended to you. And he looked at me three ways, you know, like sideways when I mentioned this guy's name. Ah, pool, Wakefield Pool, that was the name. Wakefield Pool, <laughs> yeah, I have those. Yeah. I, yeah, exactly, right. And I mentioned the name to him, and he's like, his eyebrows raised. He's kind of giving like a blue Chicago. <laughs> like, well, you have those. I really like Bijou. Bijou was the, because, yeah, that was the second one, right? Yeah, that that that, one. <laughs> that guy was a slut. He's just laying there, and I was like jumping on top of him, and then, like you know, cuts his face. Like, oh, thank you. Well, yeah, but it's a bit, it's, 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 it's surreal. Yeah, I made a comment. I did reviews on all these things. I'm like, all right, well, I'm gonna send it to me. I guess I gotta review it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One day we're gonna we're gonna review. Gay porn from the seventies. <laughs> that would be fun. Like that's my, quite honestly, my sole experience was those three week old pool movies. Is that? I'm like, ah, oh, whatever. Oh, what was the other one he said that was weird? Uh, there was one with Georgina Spelvin in it, and it was like a Bible thing. Oh, Maybe it was called Bible. The Bible, yeah. Yep. There was like three and, of them. And, and, and that one was softcore, and it surprised the hell out of everybody. It's like, you got a cast of. He not yeah he knew what he was doing he picked every uh, straight hardcore actor who exhibited acting abilities mm-hmm. right and and a lot of them did and uh, including Georgina mm-hmm. and so he made I don't know for what he spent on it or what they gave him was obviously more than like fifty dollars oh hell yeah it was like a yeah okay it was small scale but he tried to make a costume epic <laughs> he tried to make a costume epic based on the Bible yeah. okay. You should do it hardcore. How the hell are you using all these actors known for hardcore in a softcore picture? Yep. So, of course, it tanked. Yep. <laughs> we feel what did we go on our <laughs> Yeah, we just went off on a weird tangent. <laughs> anyway. Uh, multifaceted action to us, guys. Man. Action man, so, right? Action Man, 1967. Back to our topic. <laughs> <laughs> So, Jean Delanois gives us the enjoyable heist film Le Soleil de la Boyeuse, better known stateside as Action Man. The only unsolved mystery here is why he chose to cast the stiff, histrionically voiced Robert Stack of our Tony Perkins show's Is Paris Burning and our John Belushi show's 1941 as the lead, alongside beefy Jean Gabon of the Sicilian clan, which we'll talk about later, and Eurospy regular Margaret Lee, also of Circus of Fear, and our trio of Jess Franco shows Venus and Furs and Bloody Judge as the sexy barmaid who betrays them. Gabon is a washed-up old gangster-come-bar owner bored with his retirement. He starts casing out the bank across the street and plans a heist, which he goes forward with when old mercenary pal Stack arrives in town. Unfortunately for them, while they do successfully pull off the heist without anyone figuring out who did the job, they're betrayed first by a rather fade partner who kidnaps Gabon's wife for the full proceeds, then Lee, who despite demanding in on the job earlier, has second thoughts and turns both money and snitch to the cops. 
The fun of this is in the particulars, not so much the heist itself, as the for the time rather gritty and violent intergang struggles. There are a few real standout sequences, one where Stack takes on a baddie in a mechanic's garage in a serial-style fight involving a grinding stone saw and torture by blowtorch, and another where he steals a garbage truck to be used in the heist and pursued by baddies, one of whom leaps from his car into the back of the truck, only for Stack jamming the brakes, and when the guy falls into the hopper, pull the lever so he's caught in the crusher. Mind, this is in the mid-60s, so it's not as gruesome as it sounds, but wow. I was like, my mouth dropped, like, holy shit! <laughs> And my favorite scene is when Stack foils the ransom kidnapping of Gabon's wife by breaking into the gay baddie's mother's house to hold the old bag as counter hostage. Only when the trade goes down and lots of backstabbing and deaths on that end ensue, he lets her be. Only for the old bat to shoot him in the back with a shotgun several times. <laughs> I was like, wow. There's a lot of like jaw dropper moments in here. With everyone dead and the money back in the hands of the cops, they finally catch Gabon by having the teller lock him in the vault until they show to arrest him. Roll credits. Wow. Who the hell was expecting that as some generically titled Robert Stack film? There's some really good stuff, bar VCI's window box presentation with an English dub that's so bad you think it was coming off those cheap little speakers you hung from your car window to drive in back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. There's a much better presentation, preferably in its English language, but it is really enjoyable if you haven't seen it. So did you manage to get this one or no? No, I did. I managed to probably see it. Oh, nice. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, Jean Gabin was the... <laughs> he was the face of these things for a long time. Yes. And his career was so long that when he was playing mainly retired judges, retired gangsters, he was like a welcome face. You know, nice to see Margaret Lee in this. Now, Robert Stack was the one that threw me because I'm like, oh, geez, the guy from The Untouchables and America's Most Wanted. You know, he did do that for about <laughs> who knows how many decades. It's, he doesn't seem as stiff in this, Robert Stack, as he, he, he seemed in everything else. And uh, I thought it was, it was a nice little enjoyable time passer. The Son of Thieves was the original English translation for the for the picture. Actually, it's not that bad. And, but you're right. You know, it's, it's wherever they got this print from, this English language print, yeah, the sound is terrible. But, you know, one thing of note, I wanted to say, so I've been mm-hmm. watching, I doing all the stuff in this show, I've been watching an inordinate amount of uh, Hong Kong action films from the mid-80s to the early 90s. Mm-hmm. I, I can see the influence of French cinema on a lot of these movies because... Oh, that, yeah, John Woo for sure. John, well, yeah, John Woo, who, who claims that you know, he was a big fan of Melville. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, I'm sure... At this time period, this is probably what was playing in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. This kind of stuff, and you know, just soaking it up. Because I, I just watched last night. There was, there was some brutal fight scenes. I'm like, hey, I just watched something like this for Action Man. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. It's really like I said for the '60s, mid '60s. Like, wow, this is pretty brutal. I'm surprised at some of the stuff. You know, the blowtorch torture, the the garbage truck thing where the guy's getting crushed it's in the hopper. I was like, well, there's a lot of scenes in there like that, actually, but there's like really some jaw droppers. Like, holy shit. <laughs> so I enjoyed the hell out of it. That's why I threw it in here. So you ready to go on to the next one? Breathless. 
Breathless, 1960. The inept and bizarrely overpraised Jean-Luc Godard brings his amateurish cinema of meaninglessness to the French crime film with this hilariously aimless bit of unintentional absurdism. Filled with the director's unfortunate penchant to his obvious sloganeering, it's no accident that he had a long flirtation with communism, and the films he produced when this was at its height are not universally reviled even by his apologists. This steaming turd almost appears watchable in the vein of Doris Wishman films or fellow New York sexploiters like Joseph P. Maurer and the Finleys, and I have probably the first and certainly the most in-depth and amusing interview Roberta Finley ever gave over at Third Eye Cinema, whose work in aesthetic this film most closely resembles. But there's no sex, despite it being the only subject of conversation out of future French crime standby Jean-Paul Belmondo, a hapless low-rent delinquent who spends the entire film skint he eternally tries to bum money off ex-girlfriends and many acquaintances alike, and chasing after a continually elusive friend who owes him money for a job or some shit. He killed the cop early on, keeps hot-wiring cars, and spending the rest of his time wheedling boyish Gene Seberg for sex. Seberg, not exactly appealing in her mannish hairdo and twiggy-ass figure, mostly keeps him at arm's length, tries unsuccessfully to get him to talk pseudo-intellectual bullshit with her, and claims she's knocked up by him, but like everyone else in the film, he really doesn't care about anything or anyone. It's all one huge yawn of ennui, ending on a wannabe punk rock quote, You make me want to puke. What a genius! What a great film and emblematic of its era, please. Strangely, the astronomically superior director Jean-Paul Melville cameos here as a pretentious director interviewed by Seberg and fellow paparazzi who spouts pretentious absurdisms. Was this some snarky indictment of faux auteurs? Hardly as Godard is more guilty of shoveling shit and pretending he's dispensing gems of deep wisdom than any other director <laughs> in history. <laughs> With a non-sequitur-filled script, choppy editing, and aimless plot which ultimately says nothing beyond sheer nihilism and barely sublimated homoeroticism, Belmondo and the rest of the cast hold nothing but derision towards women in the cast, or in general, only paying the slightest acquiescence towards the decidedly boyish Seaburg. You read between the lines there. Trash as usual from this conceited, talentless clown of a film school dropout, notable mainly for its inclusion of two guys who go on to far better French crime cinema in the future. So, what's your take? Well, I mean, how is the screenplay... What screenplay? <laughs> based on a story by Truffaut and Claude Chabrol, mm -hmm. end up like this. But, you know, it's almost like stream of consciousness. It's like... Um, yeah, but of a moron. <laughs> well, it's, it's 1960, so it's... Y'all, like, Elvis is broke, mm -hmm. broken in through the barriers, Elvis Presley, and, and so there's... We did a show on Elvis films. <laughs> I, I I don't dislike Godard as much as you do, but... It's kind of hard to do. <laughs> I, I just said, I don't dislike him as much as you do. But, but I, I always found Gene Seberg a character... And not in a humorous way. She always seemed to be like a femboy, mm. which, which is a guy who wants to be really feminine. Mm -hmm. and, and Gene Seinberg never came across to me as a um, as a strong female character. Anything I've ever seen her in, even when she was playing a villainess or you know whatever. Um, it's a strange movie, and oddly enough, there was there was a remake of this. Yes, there was. With what director of De Mornay, right? And Richard Gere? Yeah. Yeah. Which actually was <laughs> It was better. <laughs> it was better. Val Valerie Kopinski. Mm-hmm. That was that was her name. And um and I was like, Oh, they're gonna remake Breathless. I'm like, that wasn't bad. 
<laughs> it really wasn't. I mean, I wouldn't say it was a great film, but compared to this, it was a masterwork. <laughs> but the thing was, you know, Belmondo was young at the time. He was hungry. He was mm-hmm. a hungry actor. And, you know, it's interesting that Godard, Truffaut, Chabrol, mm-hmm. they, they positioned uh, Belmondo's character, Michelle, as a criminal who models himself on one of your favorites, Humphrey Bogart. Yes, Humphrey Bogart, who did show on. Mm-hmm. And, and the, but the picture it winds up becoming aimless and, and in, all over the place, and, and it's... And we'd seen a lot of experimental films over the years, and we talked about them like in our De Palma show and the early films that he did. Yeah. And, you know, something weird put out a lot of these kind of things. I'm used to the 60s experimental film. Don't always like it, but a lot of it's okay. This is just crap. I don't understand how he got so big, probably from his own propaganda, because he was always being mouthy and like talking about all this, like, oh, look at the intellectual theories of my bullshit cinema, meandering stream of thought, you know, communist sloganeering, and talking about sex all the time and not getting any. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> And choppy editing, even when he did uh, what we talked about in our Badoa show, Content, which I still think is one of his best films, sadly enough. It's a mess. I was like, oh, yes, look, I am alluding to, you know, the, the Greek gods and, you know, putting Fritz Lang in here. And I'm, really? It just doesn't, I don't know, the guy's an idiot. That's all I can say. He's a pseudo intellectual idiot. So, <laughs> and you mentioned Gene Serberg. You know, he sure struck me like a less drugged out Edie Sedgwick. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> But Gene Seberg died tragically. Yes. So now we go on to Melville. Yes. So French crime film specialist and Nouvelle Vague peripheral figure Jean-Pierre Melville moved from on-screen roles in films like Godard's Breathless and weird schmaltzy dramas like Leon Moran Priest, which I actually sat through. The only good part is when the girl who wants to fuck him tells him she fucks herself with a hatchet handle or some shit. I use wood. <laughs> Founding grew in his metier, starting with the middling likes of Bob Flambeau and Two Men in Manhattan, to increasingly more characteristic work like Le Deleuze, Le Deuxième Soufflé, and especially Touche par le before hitting his stride with a trio of excellent films that capture the languid, more measured pace and attention to aesthetic of Antonioni as applied to the heist and noir film genre. With an unparalleled fetishization and obsessive attention to the details of a heist or criminal operation, and a New York sexploitation-style refusal to cut away from even the most seemingly innocuous of proceedings, he, like both Antonioni and Hitchcock, fixates on the mise-en-scene of the cities and countryside his characters pass through, following them every step of the way through their complex and serpentine movements and evasive maneuvers. Not content to show us Mission Impossible style, the terse, sweaty tension of the respective break-ins, escapes, and negotiations between his anti-hero protagonists, he makes his camera and the viewer watch every walk, cab ride, stairwell ascent, and elevator ride in complete silence and with a gloomy, overcast, or oppressive nighttime feel. It leaves his films, and far more so the final trio that we've been discussing tonight, highly oneric, putting the viewer into a beta state that's both peaceful and intense, waiting for the next shoe to drop, the next burst of sudden violence, the hunter to finally catch up to his prey, and the confrontation that will inevitably ensue. While the earlier work's names certainly bear elements and even long sequences of such, these final color films break out of the ghetto of deliberate old-school noir homage to a more vibrant and direct cross between neo-noir and the Antoniesque placement of setting over story, making the cities, seedy nightclubs and bars and oppressive hideout meeting spaces as important a character in the proceedings as his oft-understated, even cipher-esque leads. 
As a longtime fan of both Hitchcock, Antonioni, and film noir per se, not to mention similarly deliberate and non-Eric Fair like Jess Franco, I absolutely adore Late Melville, and his repeated usage of Alain Delon is very likely a major factor in the man's reputation as a crime film go-to, though many of his subsequent roles post-Melville tend to be supporting ones rather than proper leads. So, is there anything you want to say about Melville before I jump into The Samurai? No, I... I... You, you pretty much nailed it. I have a lot to say about Lee Samurai, so go ahead. Okay. So 1967. Here's one of Melville's stronger and more representative films, where he's toned down the vagaries of plot and dialogue to the sparseness of minimalism. It's literally 20 minutes into the film before anyone's spoken more than a few words of script. And bar a few necessary exchanges at the police station and with our hero's backstabbing bosses, there's barely a half a dozen pages of spoken dialogue throughout the full hour and 45 minutes of the film, per se. There you go with the hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> Delon, is a, <laughs> Delon is a cold-blooded hitman who lives by the Miyamoto Musashi-esque but wholly imaginary quote that kicks off the film that there is none more alone than the samurai, save perhaps the tiger in the jungle. Despite having a thing going with an effective horror and the decided interest and support of a rather attractive Josephine Baker type, he lives alone in a dingy flat with his canary and seems to have no connections to anyone. He never even has a sex scene or a genuine romantic embrace with either of the women. The rest of the film is Delon establishing an elaborate dual alibi before a successful hit, then everyone getting hauled down to the station, where he's a suspect that they can't actually pin down as the killer, partly due to the aforementioned Kathy Rosier, the chanteuse of the nightclub he pulls the hit at, who saw him but pretends he's not the killer. There's then a dual threat of him traveling around the city in an elaborate manner to evade their tales, their attempts to bug his place and threaten his alibi with a vice squad bust, and his being betrayed by the client, which leads him to suss out their identity and take them out as well. Nathalie Dillon, far more appealing in When Eight Bells Toll in our Richard Burton show's Bluebeard, comes off as decidedly prim and hard-bitten here in her first film role. Given her divorce from the film star in the same year, maybe that explains the lack of sexual tension and her pissed-off demeanor, but it's a bit bizarre for a woman who's supposedly a kept girl-come-prostitute in love with the sugar daddy DeLong to be so icy, annoyed, and dressing like an old lady throughout. Other than DeLong and Rosier, effectively the true leads in the film, everyone is rather forgettable, and there's little to this story-wise, and even less despianism to hang anyone's hat on. Everyone's a cipher. It's all about the deliberate-laden mechanics of all of this, how he establishes his alibis, how he pulls the hit, how he tells the backstabbing client, and how the cops close the net. The visuals, the mise-en-scene, that's all that matters. It could have been anyone in these roles, and the film wouldn't change a lick. Due to his age and focus on this sort of noirist subject matter throughout his career, Melville was sort of shunted aside by his younger peers and denigrated or shrugged off by critics enamored of the nouvelle vogue that shook the very foundations of cinema in the 60s. But if his films, particularly his mature works that really begin with Le Samurai, were any more like the deservedly faded and blatantly existential works of Michelangelo Antonioni, they'd be Antonioni films. Oh, it's just a great movie. Mm-hmm. I backtracked, you know, I'm a big John Woo fan, and um, and uh, I read all these interviews, you know, as John Woo became more comfortable with being interviewed when he was making his movies here, mm-hmm. being interviewed in English, he, you know, he felt more comfortable saying, like, yeah, when I was young and I lived in Hong Kong, we would see French films. That's all you would see were French films. <laughs> You know, and, and they were in French, and they were subtitled in, you know, whatever, uh, Mandarin or Cantonese. He said he was a big fan of Melville. Mm-hmm. So, that being said, the the bird in the cage. Mm-hmm. Wu's fascination with those. Mm-hmm. The long 
spaces of no dialogue. Mm -hmm. But action, but it's not action. It's like movement. Yes. Right? The thing I found about Melville, which which really got me into Melville, especially the three films we're going to talk about tonight. I said this was going to be a long show. Mm -hmm. Well, we had a really long intro anyway. Was that I loved how he worked with space and time. Yes. These are not action movies. This is like, these are very, you could almost see this really happening mm -hmm. at that time period. Yes. This, this guy has a bird as a pet in a cage, and which, again, Wu connection, the dogs, because Wu was influenced so much by this. And, you know, the guy dresses a certain way, and his relationship with Kathy Rosier, the singer, mm -hmm. also is almost very similar to the relationship that Jai Yun Fat has with the singer who he accidentally blinds. Because, mm -hmm. of course, Jai Wu had to amp up the... Uh, the violence? <laughs> the drama. Yes. Yeah. He had to amp up the drama somewhat. Yeah, Wu is a much more kinetic director, so... But yes, you can definitely see the parallel. But there's a lot of similarities mm -hmm. in the styles of both these guys. Martin Scorsese, who I know you're no fan of, and uh, we don't need to go there, <laughs> also really liked this... Uh, this picture from Melville, but you're, you're right. You mentioned something about Elaine Delon, where he kind of got like lumped in with this, but this is not really what else he did. Mm -hmm. He did other things. Yes. But his association with Melville really, in a way, really connected him to a genre. Better, better or worse, uh, it didn't really help Delon because he had some real life shit happening mm -hmm. a couple years down the road. But no, they summarize one of my favorites is a Criterion version. I actually have a French disc of this, which I believe to be even a little longer. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, What's the extra scenes? What got cut out? Everything's slower and longer. <laughs> <laughs> even slower. It, that's what's amazing. There's a weird, like I said, an generic feel where it feels very kinetic. This camera is constantly in motion, even in what you, you would think was a still quiet scene, and yet it's following every single footstep, almost like a Warhol thing, where you're like living theater. Like, okay, do we really need to see every single movement this guy makes? You know, moving through the streets, climbing stairs, you know, whatever it like is. That. I like that. But it works, now, yeah. It works. The red circle next? Yes, the circle rouge. I've dealt with so many suspects who are innocent. All men are guilty. They're born innocent, but it doesn't last. The next one is far more plot-heavy, and while still filled with gloomy, overcast visuals, attention to setting, long silences, and fetishistic attention to detail and taking the viewer with the characters every step of the way from point A to point B, this is a significant increase in dialogue by comparison with the minimalistic Le Samurai. And now Mustachio Delon gets out of jail on good behavior. A warden who's in with him tips him off to a good heist prospect, and he heads out into the real world again to visit an old pal who took his gun, money, and girl in the meantime, mostly just to get some cash. Meanwhile, Jean-Marie Volante of our Clint Eastwood show's Fistful of Dollars and for a few dollars more, Damiano Damiani's La Strega and Amore, a.k.a. The Witch, and A Bullet for the General, an investigation of a citizen above suspicion, escapes from a prison transport by train deep into the countryside. Delon notes all the police activity and stops off at a diner in the vicinity, purposely leaving his car trunk unlocked so the fugitive can hide there, and guess what? He just happens to do so via a huge Deus Ex Machina. Delon keeps getting stopped by traffic stops searching for the escapee, but manages to bullshit and distract his way into passing without suspicion, only to pull over in an isolated spot and face off with Volante, who he wins over. 
Meantime, the old pal since his bone breaker is out to get his money back and take the lawn out, which is only foiled by new pal Volante surprising them and taking them out in turn, jumping out of the trunk. The two plan out the elaborate heist, which requires a crack shot, so Delon hits up half-crazed drunk Yves Montan, of all people, of the Marilyn Monroe Let's Speak Love, the Bab Streisand on a clear day you can see forever, and our Tony Perkins shows his Paris burning, a former cop who, ironically enough, left the force due to disgust with thin blue line corruption. Finding his way back to self-respect, he even turns down his part of the take and tries to protect Delon and Volante out of gratitude. While all this has been going down, French comedian André Bourville, a cat-loving loner or a police inspector, has been tapping leads and effectively blackmails a club owner who works with Delon to set him up as a supposed fence for the stolen goods so that he can nail them. Delon is fooled, Volante seems to have sussed it out and tries to hold Bourville at gunpoint while they escape, and all three are gunned down roll credits. Wow, that was in many ways a hell of a step up from the samurai. It's not as oneric due to a busier plot and several known actors needing dialogue to explain their actions in the situation, but it's clear he was still improving even in his later years. I really like this one. Of these final three, this is my favorite. Oh, I like this. The next one we're going to discuss is my my favorite along with the samurai, but the, the red circle, the circle roof, very interesting. It's funny. It's long. It's yes, it is. Two and a half hours, isn't it? Yeah, two and a half hours, and uh, it's uh, lots of stuff going on here. It's funny because like Melville goes from minimalism to plot heavy, <laughs> plot heavy, and, and although the dialogue isn't heavy, true, it's plot heavy. And uh, I have to say, Borville was usually a comedian. He did a good job. Yeah, he plays comic roles. It mm-hmm. does very good. He's very good in the uh, straight role. He's Montan. Mm-hmm. John Maria Volante, you know, good cast. Uh, I have this also another criterion thing. You know, they did one of those crazy sales that you never see again. Like, okay, I'll buy it. <laughs> and it's, um, I, I drag it out every so often, like I did for the show. And I was like, I quite like it. I, I, I just, uh, I'm surprised nobody's remade this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tighter. Nowadays, they would do it tighter. Every yeah, probably like an hour and ten minutes instead of two and a half hours. No, no, no. It'd be two and a half hours. That's the way movies average like this two and a half hours. But it would still be tighter and it would be more manageable. It's an interesting film. Um, I just, you know, if I had to pick favorites, Samurai or Ufik, a cop. So that's the next one, Unflik. Melville's final film once again brings Alain Delon to the lead, only this time on the other side of the thin blue line as the inspector. Richard Crenna of our Steve McQueen shows The Sand Pebbles, our Charles Bronson shows Breakheart Pass, Devil Dog, The Hound of Hell, and all three Rambo pictures from our Sylvester Stallone show, and TV bit player Michael Conrad are among the baddies who hold up a surprisingly abandoned, decidedly Antonioni-esque rain-swept seaside bank, which goes wrong when a ballsy teller trips the alarm and shoots one of them, getting gunned down in turn. They bring the walking wounded to a private clinic, bury the money in a field, and go their separate ways until the heat is off. We're classic victims, and we're dealing with real professionals. They tell us they're 20 years old, and then they rob us. That's when they show us their ID cards. We can't call on the police for fear of being prosecuted for corruption of minors. It's what's known as habitual offense. You're only prosecuted if we reoffend. We all do. Galan is shown doing his rounds, mostly on the vice squad end of things, dealing with homosexual rip-offs and tranny hookers, eventually trysting with Krenna's lady friend, Catherine Deneuve, of our Radley Mesker shows The Twilight Girls, our Rowan Polanski shows Repulsion, and our Burt Reynolds shows Hustle. 
Worrying the cops are closing in, they attempt to get their power released from hospital, but he's still too critical, so they send Danuva in to put air in his IV and get rid of the loose end. Then, perhaps realizing things are going to wrap up too soon, Melville jerks us off on another track entirely by claiming the bank robbery was just to fund the real heist, a Bondian helicopter-assisted raid on a moving train, amusingly they look like a Subaraya-style HO model train and toy helicopter to intercept a drug shipment and take all the horse for themselves. Okay... Even crazier, Deneuve, so involved in all this as they have killed one of the crew herself, mind, becomes a snitch for DeLong, who, despite an attempt to intercept the drug transaction, was foiled by the whole helicopter shtick, decides that she gives bad intel, and starts beating her around for it. Eventually, Krennic calls Deneuve's now-tapped phone that he scored the dope, and gets intercepted by DeLong, who guns him right down in front of the two men's mutual screw. She shoots him a look, he goes back on his rounds like nothing happened, but refuses to answer his latest call from dispatch. Uh, yay? There's a reason a lot of folks feel this one was a letdown. The real world criminally tied to loan in no way, shape, or form approximates the role of cop. Deneuve is the only major actress of the period who could match the loan for habitual emotionlessness and sleepwalking their way through a part, and Krenna is not really suited for this sort of role, let's leave it at that. While the first half of the film is top tier in Melville, something happens halfway through. DeLong seems to come off like fetch quests in a video game. There's not enough story to fill the running time, so here's some random busy work and pointless side quests, however amusing these prove to be in practice. The train heist promises the usual Melvillian Mission Impossible style thrills, but the obvious impoverished nature of the miniature props leaves it coming off distinctly silly. And the fact that the whole first half becomes shunted off onto what appears to be another film plot entirely leaves viewers feeling cheated and the film oddly disjointed. I still think the visuals of the first half hour or so are among, if not his best work. But you can't deny that it feels rushed, unfinished, and choppy as a whole, not to mention somewhat miscast in multiple roles. So what's your take? You obviously felt a lot more about this one. Yeah, yeah, because there's two versions of this I found out. Oh, really? There's the English language version called The Cop, also known as Dirty Money, and Un Flip which translate to a cop. I saw, actually have in my collection, a DVD I forgot where from, I'm not going to drag it out, for um, Dirty Money, mm-hmm. which is like 72 minutes long. I'm like, yeah, it's okay, whatever. And it took me a long time to find Oufle. And when I saw it, I was like, hey, this is 100 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, all seriousness, it is 100 minutes long. I loved it. I fell in love with this movie. Why? I don't fucking know. So it's, I love like Asbury Park, Seaside shit like that. Oh, that first 20 minutes, I think it's the best thing he ever filmed. But after that, it just gets destroyed. Yeah, yeah. just like, these guys are sitting in the car. Raining. They're going to do a heist. What kind of heist? You don't know. And that's what's missing out of a lot of the English version. Because they probably thought, nobody wants to watch this. But yes, we do. That's the whole thing. It's the mess I'll see. It's, it's these guys sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. You mentioned the thing about Deneuve. Yeah, well, I don't know. I, she's never been a huge favorite of mine, but I have nothing personally against her. I thought Richard Crenna was fine. It's interesting to note that, you know, he's, he's been around for a long time. He looked kind of grizzled by Rambo, but we know why. He's been around for a long time working in French crime films. I kind of like this. Yes, I do sort of agree with you when we realize it's all about the <laughs> the cheesy train-looking hazy. <laughs> I don't know what happened with that. Maybe they ran out of money. There's a lot of stuff written about that I think I've seen. 
Michael Conrad, who is actually the brother of, believe it or not, he's a familiar face. He was in many, many TV shows. Oh my God, who is he the brother of? I cannot remember. He was in everything, even Hill Street Blues. He was a sergeant, 65 uh, episodes, uh, five years. Well, well, West, wasn't it? So anyway. Farewell? Let's just jump to farewell, friend, because I have no idea where it was. <laughs> yeah, I think you're pretty much at the end because we're talking about the train thing. And Anyway, Farewell Friend, 1967. A Jean Hermann directs this twisty and highly homoerotic heist film that brings Bronson together with the ubiquitous Alain Delon of our Tony Perkins shows Is Paris Burning, Melville's Le Samurai, Le Cercle Rouge and Un Flic, Diabolically Yours, Icy Breast, The Sicilian Clan, we'll be talking a lot of these soon, and our Peter Fonda shows Spirits of the Dead. The stunning Olga Georges Picot of Robe Grillet's success of slidings of pleasure and Woody Allen's love and death is Delon's de facto girlfriend, the widow of a man he killed in Algiers, who he agrees to effectively rob a bank for. Technically, she asks that he, quote, discreetly return some papers to the safe for her, which is so transparent a setup, only a film victim would buy that, with the covert assistance of co-worker Brigitte Fossey. Bronson, who Delon specifically requested for the film after seeing him in Roger Corman's Machine Gun Kelly, is a fellow Foreign Legion vet who wants in so that he can actually rob the bank and retire. While the two squabble like a married couple, they both wind up doing the job in a rather Mission impossible manner, only to wind up trapped inside, not for the first time, shirtless and sweaty, one-upping each other and bickering. Unfortunately for them, the money is gone, and a guard was shot, ostensibly with Delon's gun. It was all set up by the ladies, who also appear to have a thing going on. Damn, is this picture lavender or what? Bronson saves Delon at the airport by getting the police's attention, and winds up grilled and tortured by them, but refuses to give Delon up, only for Delon to, as credits roll, return the favor. Well, we took this one on our Bronson show, and it's a good one. Fosse's cute, Georges Picot's gorgeous, but despite both men seeming to be on the make at the outset, there's not a lot of sex to be found in this film. Straight and openly shown sex, anyway. It becomes pretty clear that there are two couples in here, and it ain't the way you expect at the start of the film. Apparently this one and the next one made Bronson a star, not only in France, but stateside, effectively taking from his ensemble cast roles prior to leading man status from here on out. And we discussed this one in our Bronson show, we did an entire show on the man, so... Oh, I love this movie. I, uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. Love, I love this movie. Farewell, Friend, Honor Among Thieves, 68, French-Italian crime heist film. How long does it run? It runs 95 minutes, five minutes short. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually I think it's longer, but whatever, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, you pretty much outline what it's about. And basically, you have these two guys who are locked in this, in this vault. <laughs> they got no food or drink. For the most part, and you know the, the air's running out, the lights running out, and they don't like each other. They like each other, and you know <laughs> you're right though. There's a very homoerotic subtext going on here. I'm very surprised that Bronson would do it, mm-hmm. or DeLong for that matter, because it's quite obvious what's going on. <laughs> and not just with them, but with the ladies. I'm like, okay. Yeah, well, with the ladies, yeah, and and. It's a very talk. So anybody coming into like, what the hell are these guys talking about? You outline what the movie's about. It's a very talky film. It's a dialogue heavy film, but you have such very strong performances from Elaine Delon and Charles Bronson. Yes, Charles Bronson is fucking amazing in this. Yes, he's very good here. You know, all of his French films. We we did a we did a whole show on Bronson. We did right. Yes, we did. And. (laughs) 
So we did a whole show on Bronze, and you know, he's never to be discredited for sleepwalking or um, doing a bad performance because, you know, I, I read some books about him. There's a couple out there, and the guy always believed if I'm going to do it, I'm going to, I'm going to do this movie. I mean, I like this movie. I mean, I love the role. But I'm going to try to give it something. Yeah. Uh, which is why often he, he wanted to work with Jill Ireland versus girlfriend than his wife, because he felt, you know, he can imbibe something extra into that. You know, if she was his girlfriend or his wife in the film, whatever, the femme fatale. Um, thankfully, she's not in this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Nothing against Jill Island. I, I like her. I thought she was attractive, and she's not a bad no, actress. I but... like her too. Right? <laughs> it's just it's a takeaway. You know? Yeah. So it just and it makes this more of a French crime film, with just like him, Jill and everybody else who's who's non-American. Mm-hmm. And and I really like this movie. Uh, yeah, I actually revisit it myself once every two years. I had to go a little sooner for this. Well, maybe once every three or four years, but I wanted to rewatch it again because I know you wanted to cover it. Yeah. I really liked it. And oh, yeah. I forgot that <laughs> Bronson had such a memorable role in Machine Gun Kelly that DeLong would even consider him because it was a couple of years earlier than this. But I guess Lynn DeLong has credit. But he also had credit with the with the underworld. Mm-hmm. And he had credit with the, the French... Uh, Credible circles. <laughs> Credible circles, yes. Making movies, getting movies made. Say what you will about journeyman director Jean Hermann, mm-hmm. but this is, I think it's a powerhouse movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot more people should watch this film. Oh, yeah. No, it's First a good of all, one. yeah, yeah. If you just think Elaine Delon's a pretty boy, if you think Charles Brunson's just a grunt, now, you watch this movie, you see two guys acting, which is pretty much what I said the last time we talked about this in the Brunson show. You'd see two guys acting pretty much for almost two hours, and, and it's like really good stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I like the hell out of it. Yeah, definitely. So, Rider in the Rain. Uh-huh. Rene Clement, also of In Hope to Die and our Tony Perkins shows Is Paris Burning, delivers this moody tale where a said Perkins shows 10 Days Wonders, boyish Marlene Gilbert, married to an absent airline pilot, Laura Gamzer hubby and frequent co-star Gabriel Pinti, finds herself stalked and eventually raped by a strange man who she kills and dumps the body of disposing of the evidence. Suddenly, Bronson turns up, acting menacing and questioning her about a dead body and her likely involvement in it. The rest of the film is his manipulating her into becoming bait for his investigation, as he's an army man after the corpse, who's a crazy vet and serial rapist, and his, and perhaps her husband's, apparent ties to a drug ring. In the end, she leads him to the real body, he was bluffing her using another unrelated homicide, and he lets her go without turning her into the cops, led by and hope to die's Jean Gabon as the inspector. It's very slight and more Hitchcockian than anything else, but it's atmospheric, it's terse, and it's filled with gaslighting confusion for both Jobert and the viewer. I always liked this one. Once upon a time, I actually preferred it to Farewell Friend, which it should have released with. I'm not so sure this time around, but still, it's, it is really surprisingly decent for what it is, despite being slight. No, it's surprisingly good. Rene Clement has been directing films for a long, long time. Yeah, this is from Bronson's period of working in... France and Italy, primarily in France at this period. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he's really good in this because you're not 
it's got a bit of a Hitchcockian melodrama going on here because it's a, you're not quite sure mm-hmm. what's going on with him. You remind me of a bit of yeah. the Lindsay uh, Carol Baker Jallos, those early ones. Yeah. And a bit of that feel to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like that then as in now because we, we watched this before for the Bronson show. Mm-hmm. I liked that Bronson wasn't the killer. Yes. No. <laughs> No, because it really, really goes that direction, mm-hmm. and and it really weighs heavily in that area. But it, it's surprisingly, uh, oh gosh, it's like a bag. If you give a kid a bag and say, put all of daddy and mommy's treasured valuables in here, and spill it onto the ground, and we'll pick at it one by one, and you're not quite sure what's going to come out of the bag. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a weird thing, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a very strange metaphor, but all right. Let's see where you're going with it. <laughs> well, no. It's like, so, like, is he a killer? Is he not a killer? Mm-hmm. Can she be trusted? Is she kind of crazy? You know, is somebody really after her? It's it's all, well, it's like a French giallo. Yes. In a way. Yeah. And another film that actually reminds me of was that TV movie that Elizabeth Montgomery from Bewitched did, The Victim. You ever see that thing? Mm-hmm. Yes. Especially the intro here with, you know, the rainy roads and all that kind of stuff and the whole thing of being stalked by this weirdo and not really knowing who's on what side. It's got a very similar feel. This is a lot better than that one, obviously, but very similar. So um, next up, Cold Sweat, directed despite its French settings, cast and approach by Terrence Young, who gave us the first three Bond films from our trio of James Bond shows. Yeah. This one is essentially a home invasion picture again, a la our Frank Sinatra shows Suddenly, our Bogart shows Key Largo and Petrified Forest, Give Us Tomorrow, which I believe we talked about in our Slap and Tickle show, even though it's not really a Slap and Tickle movie, or Brando's Night of the Following Day. Bronson... Slap and Tickle? <laughs> Remember Slap and Tickle show? We talked all the uh, the Confessions films and things like that. <laughs> oh, I thought you said Slide the Pickle. It was a Slide the Pickle! <laughs> Uh, anyway, did we do a slide to pickle show? <laughs> well, I don't know. You were talking about uh, what the hell was that guy before Wakefield Pool? <laughs> anyway, slide to pickle. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, will, will listeners be able to recover from that one? Well, I have, no, it'll take a bit. Anyway, Bronson is an ex-military man <laughs> turned boat captain. <laughs> In a quiet French seaport town, married to Liv Ullman of Leonore, The Night Visitor, which I reviewed over at thirdicinema.wordpress.com, and Mindwalk. It turns out he was keeping a secret, but it's not as bad as you'd expect. He's also an ex-con who played getaway man for his former compatriots during a prison break, but ditched them when crazy Katanga killed a beat cop who stumbled across them during the attempt, leaving the others to an extended sentence in the world within a world that is prison life. Now they're back. Looking for payback from their old pal, namely his boat to escape to safe haven. Of course, that's his entire livelihood, and they have Omen and their kid hostage, so he has to keep them mollified while watching for an opening to take them down one by one. James Mason of our Stanley Kubrick shows Lolita and our Michael Caine shows the Marseille contract is the ringleader. 
Italian cult film regular Luigi Pastilli of, get this, our cleanest would shows for a few dollars more and the good, bad, and the ugly. Texas Adios and Death Rides a Horse. Our Italian Sleeve shows The Sweet Body of Deborah. Our Klaus Kinski shows The Great Silence. Our Policia Teschi shows Machine Gun McCain and Milan Caliber 9. Our Mario Bava shows Bay of Blood, a.k.a. Twitch of the Death Nerve. The Case of the Scorpion's Tail, The Iguana with a Ton of Fire. Your Vice is a Locker Room and Only Have the Key. A White Dress from Marielle. Ricardo Freitas Tragic Ceremony. And the Eerie Midnight Horror Show, a.k.a. The Sexorcist, is the Dopey Fausto. Michael Constantine of Violent City, Barack Chicks the Beast, and Glorious Bastards, interestingly dubbed by David Hess here, is the forgettable Whitey, and voiceover man Jean Topaire makes a rare on-screen appearance as the icy mercenary Katanga, who starts off with Mason but becomes the worst of the baddies involved. Omen, for her part, is reserved but defiant, and sure of Bronson's ability to take them all down, which wins her the respect of Mason, who is slowly bleeding out in her only defense against Katanga, while Bronson is sent on fetch quest to bring Mason's dotty hippie girlfriend, Gerald Ireland, and her stripping of stolen cash from the airport, a doctor for Mason, and eventually the Captain Katanga offshore, all while picking off his nemeses and outmaneuvering them. It's another one based on a Richard Matheson story, and now that it's finally available in a decent print, I like it even more than I did when we did the Bronson show a few years back. It's actually the best of the three French Bronson films, and in some ways is good or better than Corbucci's Violent City, which I love. Everyone here does a hell of a job, and if there's a rival to Key Largo, honestly, this is it. Oh, I wouldn't say it's the best of the Bronson. Well, of these French ones, that's what I feel, yeah. It's funny, you know, uh, <laughs> Terrence Young, he did Dr. No from Russia with Love, and then he did a bunch of strange stuff. <laughs> he even did Super Stooges versus the Wonder Woman or something like that, or something very similar to that. He was born in China, which I didn't know. So maybe he had all these life experiences. This one is a French-Italian co-production, and it does have Jill Ireland, as you mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> Previously, I mentioned, well, Jill Ireland wasn't in that one. Oh, it's a, it's a fine film. Um, I don't think it was promoted very well mm-hmm. in the U.S., but it's not a bad movie. And you know, it's funny, James Mason, at this point in time, so this is pre the last of Sheila. James Mason's rocking this kind of like uh, goatee thing with a mustache, mm-hmm. looking like you know the guy you don't want to go to Fire Island with. <laughs> you remember when we did the last of Sheila show? I think it was in the Tony Perkins one. Yeah. We had mentioned that story that one of them said on the commentary track about his manservant that the wife got him that used to like bathe him and like rub his toes at night. <laughs> So there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, I don't like it as much as you do, but that that's fine. You know, it's just, it's it's a um, interesting. There's so many things that Hudson did around this time period that they, after a while you start to like go, wow, wow. <laughs> Like Someone Behind the Door. Yes, that's next, Someone Behind the Door. Nicholas Guesnay's Someone Behind the Door, Calcun Derrière à la Porte. This is the final of a quartet of French films that in many ways marked the end of Bronson's serious film roles, arguably the mechanic aside, before descending into a long career under his far more campy Death Wish persona of Paul Kersey. We discussed this one twice before for our Charles Bronson and Tony Perkins shows. Long story short, it's a highly atmospheric, almost Franco-esque small cast affair where Bronson is an amnesiac seaman who may or may not have murdered his ex in a fit of rage, taken in by psychologist Tony Perkins. 
Perkins, who's aware of and jealous of his wife, a seriously sexy Jill Ireland's affair with a mutual acquaintance, decides he can use Bronson in a perfect crime, convinced the homicidal amnesiac that he's Ireland's estranged husband, hoping that his jealous rage over the situation will force him to kill the man, or perhaps both of them. But there's a twist ending where Perkins relents and saves Ireland, admitting to the whole crime only to realize her estrangement was due to his lack of attention and affection towards her all along. We're left open-ended with several lives destroyed in the process. Wow. If you put aside the unlikelihood of a smoking hot Ireland, caught in all stages of undress and sporting some sexy oversized glasses, being married to the quirky, rather obviously homosexually inclined Perkins, this one is an amazing little chamber piece. The winter Oceanside atmosphere, it was filmed in England around Kent, and pleasant little cliffside home keep a dreary, almost oppressively oneric state throughout, which matches the confusion of Bronson at being taken from the hospital to stay with this man, ostensibly under his care, but even to his eyes, manipulative and with obvious ulterior motives. Yes, there is a strong homoerotic overtone to the whole affair. <laughs> Bronson, as usual for his French and Italian films of the era, proves a far more solid actor than his later work would ever suggest. Perkins is at the top of his game, and Ireland is pure sexual chocolate, to borrow a phrase from our Eddie Murphy shows coming to America films. A must-see, particularly for fans of Jess Franco. I love this one. I actually liked it better than when we covered it for our Bronson and Tony Perkins show. Mm -hmm. um, having watched it again. Both these guys are really interesting. You know, Anthony Perkins is a quirky motherfucker. <laughs> he's a quirky actor. He's 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 got a lot of baggage that he doesn't want to publicly acknowledge. Mm -hmm. So he's got a lot of baggage, personal baggage that he brings to his role. And you never know what's going on with this guy. Mm -hmm. So if he's offered a role that's a bit odd and different, he's going to think he's going to reach inside himself and go like, okay, let me see what I can take from here. Now Bronson is at this period where he's 1971, where he's still willing to act harder. Mm -hmm. Just like Die Harder, you know, he's willing to. I'm gonna go the extra mile. It was uh, less than ten years previous. He was digging tunnels for the um, Great Escape from our Stephen Queen show. Escape. Yeah, one of, one of the great great films of all time. And so, less than ten years later, he's leading pictures, and it's gonna be the next year when he becomes a breakout superstar. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, he's doing these things. And you're right, though, when he's in these kind of films, he's actually giving more mm -hmm. as an actor and as a persona. And it's uh, interesting. I also like the locations they shot at. Oh, yeah, it's gorgeous, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's, it's like it adds to the ambiance of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I like this one. I like it more now than when I did before. Same here. So, Diabolical Yours, 1967. And here we come to the slowest and most jalloesque films of this show. Diabolical Yours, a.k.a. Diabolicamont Volch. Alain Delon wakes up in hospital, apparently from a coma. He's greeted by sexy Santa Berger of our George Siegel show's Quiller Memorandum, and a film that bore nearly the exact same plot, Duccio Tassari's Puzzle. He doesn't recognize her or remember his life as her husband, and is taken to their palatial estate, attended by sleazy doctor and their poorly made-up, half-Chinese, quote-unquote, manservant, the very teutonic Peter Mossbacher. <laughs> they keep dosing him with pills, and she refuses to fuck him until, quote, he's well again, and his memory returns. 
Meantime, we go straight into Hitchcock's suspicion territory with all sorts of odd behaviors, sidelong glances, and unexplainable, quote, near-fatal mishaps until the whole thing finally comes together, mostly due to his finally banging Berger and letting the good doctor and his men and servants jealousy over her erupt into a multiple homicide. There's a twist open ending where nobody believes the long story, and he may actually be stuck with Berger after all. Roll credits. It looks nice, the estate is fairly sumptuous, and our two leads provide eye candy for both the guys and the gals, but even compared with far superior films like Someone Behind the Door or its direct antecedent puzzle, also starring Berger, it comes off as pretty slow-moving middling stuff. It was the final film of old-timey director Julien Duvivier, which may explain its lackluster, if visually aesthetic, approach. It's not bad, but compared to the others, yeah, it's definitely the least of them. Well, it's not bad. It's, it's trying to uh, mediate between trying to be Jallo-influenced mm-hmm. and uh, you know, having Santa Berger in it has a connection to the Edgar Wallace films. Mm-hmm. Uh, Santa Berger still was, you know, she was aging, but she still had a gorgeous body. Oh, yeah, she still looked good. Yeah, she still looked good. What's tricky about it is that the way they decide to end it up, and it's like, well, it's... Is he innocent or not? Is he, you know, I hate when movies leave you on such a dangling thread. Ambiguous, yeah. Ambiguous, yes. You know, and, and I think it could have been better if they tightened it up, but they didn't, so. Mm-hmm. So, The Road to Selena, 1970. Director Jorge Lautner, oddly enough of our Eurospy show's Goofy the Monocle, brings us down The Road to Selena. Hugely four-headed 70s TV regular Robert Walker, also a repeater of on the show's Easy Rider and Beware of the Blob, is a hippie trekking cross-country to, quote, find the real America, who happens to stop in a desert whistle-stop gas station for some water. Forty starlet, ex-wife of both Orson Welles and Dick Haynes, and Gilda herself, Rita Hayworth, is the dotty old station manager who confuses Walker for her long-lost son and takes him home for some grub and a place to stay. Thinking the whole thing bizarre, but too smart grub, to look at grub. grub. Oh, not Rob? <laughs> that would be scary. She was kind of old at this point. Thinking the whole thing bizarre, but too smart to look a gift horse in the mouth, he stays on for a bit. Jolly regular Mimsy Farmer of our Dario Argento shows Four Flies in Grey Velvet, Perfume of the Lady in Black, Autopsy, Deodato's Body Count, and our Lucio Fulci shows The Black Cat, is the oversexed sister of the son everyone is acting like Walker actually is, and they wind up banging like red state country cousins, leaving him obsessed even after he finds a picture of the guy who he looks nothing like, and learns Mimsy killed the guy when he tried to get away from her their unhealthy incestuous relationship. It's got the same dusty, strangely claustrophobic yet expensive desert feel of films like Ray Dennis Steckler's Blood Shack, or Satan in the 70s show's Enter the Devil, or a Charlotte Rampling show's Vanishing Point. Hell, even long stretches of Peter Fonda show's Easy Rider, Race with the Devil, and Dirty Mary Crazy Larry. It feels like they're totally isolated out there with no one surrounding and no real way of escape. Walker is believably lost and confused. Farmer is her usual dazed, drugged-out, homicidal hippie chick self. And Hayworth plays the then-typical old Hollywood female leads gone TV movie neurotical bat chick, as well as any of her peers. It's definitely a good one if you don't mind a slow burn. I actually could not find this one in time for the show. There were a few I couldn't. Okay. This is one of them. Yeah. All right, so next up, Icy Breath, yeah. 1974. Our man, Joe's Lautner, late of Road to Selena, drops an even better cross between Hitchcockian thriller, French crime film, and Jalo with Icy Breath, Les Zane de Glace. 
cute Mirelle Dark of our Bridget Brasho shows Please Not Now, the ridiculous Jean-Luc Godard's Weekend, and Lautner's cheesy Great Spy Chase meets up with goofy-ass, if somewhat likable troll of a pickup artist, Claude Brasseur, also of Please Not Now, while lost in thought on a deserted wintertime beach. He chats her up relentlessly despite her put-offishness and refusals, even going so far as to lie down in front of her car hoping to get run over until she finally gives him her phone number. When he takes his crappy little Vespa to her fairly palatial walled estate, he finds her a mix of open to his overtures and icy reluctance and terrified of her glaring manservant. Eventually, he meets up with a man she refers to as her lawyer, the ubiquitous real-life gangster wannabe Elan Delon, who tells him his new lady friend killed her ex, did a stint in the nuthouse, and got off pleading insanity. But Delon's rather fey little brother and annoyed wife, Nicoletta Machiavelli of our Charles Bronson show's Navajo Joe, casts doubt on Delon's motivations and his apparent romantic obsession with Dark, leaving Brasseur skeptical. When Dark goes her manservant into an attempted rape and then kills him, things turn dark. Brasseur plans an escape with Dark, thinking the whole thing is a possessive Delon and his associates, like the brutal chauffeur come bonebricker Steig, stalking and threatening her, and he gets roughed up for it. Machiavelli further convinces Brasseur of Delon's malevolence. The two are prevented from checking into nearly every hotel in the area, and when they finally do find a place to trust, she tries to slice her would-be lover open for his troubles. Delon takes over, escorting her to their favorite promontory, while police and the rest of the cast chase after them, and shoots her in the head as a strange act of mercy. Roll credits. Wow! Twists and turns, gorgeous locations, and you even get a rather nice dark nude scene for your troubles. I really, really like this one, which reminded me of... It reminded me of our Jackie Bissett shows Les Magnifiques with some of the locations, but without the goofy comedy or spy business. This one is grim but engaging, and keeps you wondering what the hell is going on throughout. Brasseur is short, goofy-looking, and a balding middle-aged man type, but he bears a certain ne'er-do-well charm, and is really trying to do the right thing throughout, despite how things turn out towards the end. He's sort of the ultimate underdog, you can't help rooting for him. Dark isn't exactly a classical beauty by conventional standards, but I always found her quite appealing, and her nude scene is, uh... Quite yummy for the era. Delon is appropriately slick and menacing, but the real star of the show on the baddie side turns out to be the roughhousing Steig, an Italian actor named Emilio Messina. It was from a Richard Matheson script, so those who listened to our Dan Curtis in the 70s show know just how much we remember his generally TV movie and Dan Curtis show-based work with all the twists, turns, and horror spectrum elements. This one was actually one of the main reasons I wanted to do this show, alongside stuff like Someone Behind the Door, the three other Bronson films, Road to Selena, La Pajure, and Hope to Die. Highly recommended. What was your take? Did you see this one? Yes, I did. And, and I had an uh, English dub of this before I, way before I saw the French version. There was a shop in uh, Times Square called... Gosh, Blowout Video, I think it was. I think, oh, I, was, place, yeah. Yeah, I think it was Korean-owned at the time. So mm-hmm. we're talking mid to late 80s, early 90s, and VHS. And mm-hmm. they had movies. You know, like They had these big green whatever color stickers on there, about all six months. And mm-hmm. they looked like pre-records VHS. And they had some Korean movies. And they had some French, a lot of French movies. And I picked this up under the French language style. It wasn't a subtitle, but you, know, you can figure it out. And I was like, wow, yeah. this is a fun film. I never liked the ending of this because... Yeah, I was like, well, I guess it's sort of an act of mercy, but... Mm. Yeah, it's it's like, I never liked the ending of this because I guess some people could say they could see it coming, but I didn't really see it coming. And, and uh, yes, Marielle Dark, Dark is a 
fixture in a lot of these movies around this time period. Many black and white action films, thrillers, etc. Claude Bressol, you mentioned. Or Bressol. <laughs> yeah, he's unlikely to pin something around, but yeah, he's, uh, he's a strong actor. Now, DeLong, I think DeLong kind of reveled in doing these kind of tricky fuck movies. I think at certain part of his life, he was maybe drawn to making these kind of pictures mm -hmm. where it's like, they're not even like Jallo ripoffs. They're like, like, I'm good, I'm bad, I'm evil. No, I'm not the guy you think I am, but actually I'm worse. <laughs> yes. And that whole thing kind of like bugs me out. So I never really warmed to this picture, but I'm, I'm glad you like it better than I do. <laughs> so the Sicilian clan, 1969. Jean Gabon of Melville's Touchepot, Hilkers B, our Eurospy shows Deadly of the Mail, our Bardot shows in Custom Allure, aka Love is My Profession, and the Robert Stack Action Man we discussed earlier, is the cuckolded head of the titular mob family. <laughs> literally a family. They all share the same name. Sort of cute. Arena Demick of Ricardo Freda's Tragic Ceremony. Al Brescia's Jello Naked Girl Found in Park. <laughs> yes, that really is the title. And one of the OSS 117 films is Gabon's much younger horny housefrau of a wife. Jalo and Policia Teshi regular Mark Perel, a sister of Ursula, live like a cop, die like a man, and our Fulci shows Don't Torture a Duckling as one of his sons. And former professional wrestler Lino Ventura, also of Melville's Touchpilot Grisby and Le Duzium Souffle, our Blaxploitation shows Three Tough Guys, and our Richard Burton shows The Medusa Touch, is the inspector chasing them down. The whole film is pretty low rent and small scale. Delone is a jewel thief busted out of prison by Gabon and family because he has inside information to pull a big jewel heist. There seems to be a lot of distrust and gamesmanship going down between them, and the original plan is Nick's when the security arrangements are changed, leading them to pull a particularly audacious airplane hijacking heist over those same jewels, being transported elsewhere for whatever reason. Meantime, Demick, obviously not getting any from old fat Gabon, sunbathes in the nude on the same deserted beach alcove where Delone is rather brutally killing eels he was catching, which bizarrely serves as some sort of foreplay that they're getting it on, don't ask me. The heist actually goes well, they force the plane to land on a highway they blocked off for this purpose, and everyone splits up to dole out the profits when the heat's off. Unfortunately, one of the bratty kids oversaw Demick getting her bricks laid by DeLong and blabs it to Gabon and family while they're watching some soap opera on TV, so he proceeds to gun down both of them and leaves the money on site, essentially giving himself over to their relentlessly pursuing Ventura roll credits. I was expecting so much more out of this one, particularly after watching so many excellent French crime films in a row. It's not bad, but it's decidedly slight, inesthetic, and both cheap feeling and rush. Even if it's not about the heist, wouldn't you spend more time in their interrelations or even the affair that brings it all down post-success? Nah. When the escape scenes are going down the first 15 minutes or so of the film, you think it's going into Melville territory or even along the lines of Farewell Friend or the Mission Impossible TV series, which we did a whole show on. But it's never that well shot and oddly lacks any of the deliberate pacing and fetishization of detail that Melville brings to the table. It's just... Dull, dry, and despite a few recognizable faces, arguably the least of all French crime films I've been exposed to to date. Well, I would, for me, I wouldn't say it's the least. Uh, I agree that the first 15, 20 minutes are pretty spectacular, though. Oh, yeah. And, and you're thinking, oh, so this is going to be something different. Uh, you know, Lino Ventura, Jean Gabon, Alain Delon, they're a pretty good trio. It seemed like 
it was just too much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can only cram so much crap into one of these things until it bursts. Mm -hmm. That's a great Ennio Morricone score. I remember that. Yes. And uh, and our Arena Demick, she was a fixture on the scene for a while, and she's pretty watchable. We <laughs> <laughs> put it kindly. Um, it's just, you know, this is like one of those French crime films that cross over into the heist genre, mm -hmm. and it just doesn't really, it's a bit too long. It's, uh, two hours, it's a bit too long. Would have been better at an hour and 40 minutes? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, serious, seriously, it, it's a fine film. I actually had a 60 millimeter of this in my personal collection for years, and I used to run this thing. And the, the, Don't ask me how many reels that was. Because any movie on 16 that was like two hours long was a lot of reels. Mm -hmm. And when you're watching it in your basement, you get tired. It's like rewinding. Yeah, didn't those reels only go like 15 minutes or something? No, it shared longer, but it's like, yeah. yeah. It was a little before my time. I remember my father had some of those things, like the moon landing or whatever the hell, you know, from 68. <laughs> no, no, they were long. They were longer than 15 minutes if they were 16. But, you know, I was, I was living in a place... Pretty much nobody cared in Brooklyn. There was a basement, and you know, I had it all set up, and you know, I had a nice big screen. But you know, after a while, you get tired to hollow it out, 60 millimeters sound. Mm -hmm. and, and then you're like, hey, I'm liking this movie. I have to rewind this before I put the next reel on. Come on. Yep, and then yeah. the sprockets break, and it starts catching and flipping. And like, yeah, I remember all that stuff. <laughs> uh, I'm so, and Hope to Die is next. Yes, and Hope to Die in 1972. Renee Clement of Rider in the Rain and our Tony Perkins shows Is Paris Spurning delivers this bizarrely taut and well-shot cross between our Humphrey Bogart shows Petrified Forest and Key Largo or Frank Sinatra Suddenly and our Klaus Kinski shows Grand Slam, half home invasion standoff, half heist film, and strangely, it almost comes off like a particularly good western besides... Jean-Louis Trontignan of our Bridget Bordeaux shows In God Created Woman, our Klaus Kinski shows The Great Silence, Jalo's Death Laid an Egg and So Sweet So Perverse, and no less than three Alain Robe Goulet films, is on the run for some hippie gypsies. There's a great opening sequence with him hitching across a bridge and escaping him through the Montreal Biodome, this weird geodesic dome tourist attraction where he comes across a murder. The dying guy hands him an envelope filled with money and tells him to have a good time with it, and that someone codenamed Tobacco is dead. He's quickly overtaken by two other guys who rough him up and threaten to kill him. For some stupid reason, they drop the hood on their convertible, and he causes a distraction that lets him shove his captor out of the moving car, which against it kills him. He's now taken to a shuttered hunting lodge and roughed up by the gang run by film noir veteran Robert Ryan of our Charles Bronson shows The Dirty Dozen, apparently a man very much on the right side of history despite his nasty film characters. Drunken sot Aldo Rea of bargain basement exploitation and horror films like The Dynamite Brothers, The Centerfold Girls, Psychic Killer, Black Samurai, and these are like Al Adamson films, mind, Haunted, Death Dimension, Don't Go Near the Park, Bog, The Glove from our John Saxon show, Human Experiments, The Executioner Part 2, Evils of the Night, and the Tracy Lord Shock'em Dead, is a pissed-off former boxer. 
He even goes around in his ring regalia, who's not all there, and hates Trump's on from the get-go. Barely restrained by Jewish artist-turned-mobster John Gavin of Storyobo and our George Siegel and Akibisic shows Who's Killing the Great Chefs of Europe, and the calm and collective quietly menacing Ryan. He also manages to catch the eye and much-needed sympathy of pretty Leah Massari of Antonioni's Laventura, who continually sides with him and eventually fucks him, apparently with Ryan's blessing. There's an odd father figure slash low-level homoerotic subtext to the Ryan Trump and Yant relationship, which becomes quite pronounced towards the end. They keep him around, albeit handcuffed, unwashed, humiliated, and barely fed. They take food and coffee away from him and force him to sleep in a child's crib, ostensibly to recover the money he was given, but as it happens to fill in for the two dead partners in an elaborate heist they're pulling, which doesn't make much sense. There's some shit where they go to an opera, they use the garage sub-basement to ram their car through two walls, they get to another building where they have a fire engine, whose ladder they use to go to the building across the way to kidnap the already dead toboggan, as she's a witness in a mob trial. The mobster's going to pay them the kidnapper, and they have to make it look like they did, substituting another member of the cast for the handoff, where they just plan to take the money and kill the mobsters anyway. Uh, why? The heist is not the point. The real story here is the continual battle of wits between Ryan and Trumpton Young, who systematically wins over or checks every one of his captors, most particularly Masari and the crazy... And the crazy but always rather cute Italian exploitation and cult film goddess Tisa Farrow of, check these credits, our Palacio Tessie shows Strange Shadows in an Empty Room, a.k.a. Blazing Magnum, or Satan in the 70s shows The Initiation of Sarah, Woody Allen's Manhattan, or Tony Perkins shows Winter Kills, or Lucio Fulci shows Zombie 2, or Joe D'Amato shows Anthropophagus, a.k.a. The Grim Reaper, and Enzo Castellari's The Last Hunter, who goes from firing a shotgun at everyone in the cast to her planning to run off with him and marry the guy under an alias. Wow. It's really good stuff, and despite so many films tonight being that good, it comes out among the best of them. Highly recommend it. I really like this one. What was your take? I couldn't see this. Oh, I mean, damn. You need to. This... I, I, I couldn't find it anywhere. So <laughs> <laughs> That Sorry. is one of the better ones tonight. It's way up there. So, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. So, next up, The Hunter Will Get You, a.k.a. La Apalgeur. And here comes another favorite, one that's not necessarily strong as the later The Professional, but stands pretty high up there in showing just why Jean-Paul Belmondo became a sort of Bruce Willis by way of Charles Bronson in French cinema of the 70s and early 80s. The plot itself is pretty slight. Belmondo is the titular big game hunter turned special police consultant slash bounty hunter. It's never quite specified other than that cops go to him on occasion for this purpose when they can't hack it. He's hunting down a seedy airline steward come assassin named The Hawk, whose M.O. is to recruit young delinquents to do or assist with the dirty work, then take them out as potential witnesses. Belmondo befriends one of his compatriots turned victim who managed to get away, and the two take down The Hawk and several other baddies along the way. There's a long bit where they hide out in a wine truck, it's like a milk truck or an oil tanker just full of red wine, before taking out the drivers, and a longer assault in a dilapidated farmhouse hideout for a band of said crooks, until Belmondo finally susses out his day job, they do a bit of verbal sparring, and our man takes him out in flight, roll credits. But damn, is this atmospheric. The farmhouse bit brings films like Roland's Grapes of Death and Revenge of the Living Dead Girls to mind, and it's extremely satisfying, a strange cross between cop, heist, and mob film that, like so many French crown films of the 60s and 70s, is both hypnotic and satisfying. And damn, that Michel Colombier soundtrack, that's something else. Did you see this one? Yes, I did. The Mundo was uh, when he got a little older. 
So we're talking, you know, we, we covered Breathless, which was 1960s, so 17 years later. Mm-hmm. He, he wisened into this, like, action guy thing. And you know what? Like, uh, I don't know. How do you compare it? You know, like, Buster Keaton, Jackie Chan. Belmondo liked to do his, his own stunts, mm-hmm. for the most part. So seeing him to jump around like he does mm-hmm. was quite impressive. And actually, uh, and remember, this is a guy with like a bulbous nose, and he's got like bow legs. And you know, when you see him in younger films, when he's doing things like uh, Le Magnifique from our uh, Jackie Bissett show, or but, or uh, but, that man from Rio from our Eurospot show, it's like, well, okay, this guy's kind of goofy. I don't really get the appeal. And then you see him in stuff like this, and it's like, oh, okay, now I get why they're reverent. Did you know that he teamed? I forgot the movie. I own it. He teamed up with Delon in '93. Three, I think it was, for an action picture. It was pretty good. It was like late in their career. Mm-hmm. And they, they kind of recovered both these roles and personas. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, why wasn't this a huge hit? Yeah, yeah, you would think so, right? <laughs> yeah. Especially in the days of like Jean Renault and all that, because that was just a little bit later than that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I enjoyed the hell out of this. Uh, I, I like to see this crazy guy bouncing around. Mm-hmm. So next up, The Professional, 1981. You had to go through three revolutions and five republics before you achieved some semblance of democracy. I don't want to hear your nonsense about ethics, morals, and comparative history. And with that ever more relevant slam against the absurdity of modern attempts to rewrite history and justify political social wrongheadedness, we kick off one of the most modern and strangely entertaining action films we'll be discussing tonight from Road to Selena and Icy Breast George Lautner. The oddly bow-legged and comically vicious Jean-Paul Belmondo, like I just said, continues and in fact fully justifies his French action hero status with this tale of political intrigue and police style revenge film. Belmondo is a French secret serviceman sent to take out a sleazy African dictator, more in the vein of Haiti's sinister Papa Doc Duvalier than Uganda's psychotic Idi Amin. Unfortunately for him, there's a political regime change in France while he's already been deployed, so the new Republican analogs want to bargain with the dictator so they can set up a nuclear arms deal. Hmm, Iran-Contra, anyone? So they betray him to the Africans, and he winds up in a gulag-style prison camp for two years. When he stands up for a fellow enemy getting a beating from the guards, the guy befriends him and helps him to escape to where he stashed his clothes, an AK-47, a passport, and cash. You mean nobody in this tiny African village stole this shit in all that time? His reappearance freaks out his bosses and partners in the service, particularly the downright evil Rosen, Robert Hussein of our Bardot show's Ripley de Guerrier, a.k.a. Warrior's Rest, and If Thou Mom Were a Woman, an OSS 117 film, and Sergio Stivaletti's Wasp Mask, who makes it his personal mission to take his old teammate down. Betrayed even by old friends, it's only his unlikely appeal to the numerous, absolutely stunning women in this cast, and his rather clever forethought and outwitting of them at every turn, that lets him complete his original mission and take down his former partners turned brutalizers of women and all-around vicious enemies. He probably never heard of these ladies. Sorel Claire as Alessandre Salon, Marie-Christine Desquare, Elizabeth Margoni, but they're all absolutely gorgeous, and with the exception of glasses bedecked inside contact Claire, all get very naked or damn close to it, providing a whole lot of eye candy to go with all the action thrills. There's a nice, if rather down-market chase scene a la our Bronson show's Violent City, only it's too crappier in nose and pretty low speed by comparison. Even so, there's a scene going downstairs, one car going head-on, the other facing it in reverse the whole way, and an unlikely denouement where he manages to flip their car, which immediately goes on fire, and lots of wow, 
that was clever at moments like this. When he gets past surveillance on his wife's flat by recruiting a group of bums to stage a big brawl that winds up involving the lookouts, you even get a high noon style standoff between Belmondo and Hossein. I also got a kick out of the rookie daddy who looks exactly like Sean Penn as Spicoli. What a dick. I wasn't expecting a French cop film from 1981 to work quite so well as this one did, but for once, it deserves its reputation. Top-notch stuff, and like La Roger, it earns Belmont's surprising late career rep as a believable screen-action tough guy. What was your take? Well, my take is uh, since Jackie Chan stole so much of this film for Police Story 1 and Police Story 2, yes. how come he never teamed up with Belmondo? Good question. It's a hell of a good question. And that was only a couple years later. It was 86, Police Story. Oh, earlier than that, earlier than that. And it's like, uh, especially this film. But so one second, though. Wasn't Bill Mondo the guy that didn't want to leave France? He refused to come to America, even though they were offering him big money? That was Hong Kong. Maybe he didn't want to leave France period. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. He didn't want to leave France. So that's why he, probably Jackie couldn't have got him. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but it's funny because, you know, if you look at Police Story 1 and Police Story 2, mm-hmm. they steal so much stuff from him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, borrow. Let's just put a kind of <laughs> I mean, uh, I love Jackie Chan. Yeah, oh, yeah. So, you know, no, no, uh... no, they're both great films. I love the Police Story films, and I'd seen them well before I saw this one, but holy shit, what a film. Yeah, but the but the professional's a lot of fun, and the, the great supporting cast, and yeah, the guy was on point. He was, Belmondo was pretty much forgotten now, yeah. right? But uh, he was... It's uh... a huge thing in France, and I always wondered why, having seen his earlier stuff, and not these and then when I saw these, I'm like, oh, now I get it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> That's what they were going on about all these years. See, so we have one more, right? Yes. Le Marginal. Yes, Le Marginal, a.k.a. The Outsider. After laughing at him in his bulbous nose and goofy roles like our Eurospy shows That Man from Rio and our Jackie Fisher shows The Magnifique, the trio of late-career crime films that kicked off La La Plagiura and The Excellent Le Professionnel finds what I believe is its final act here in Le Marginal, really changed the game for Beaumondo. With these films, and particularly Professionnel, why the French seem to hold them in such high regard. And admittedly still a bit of a cipher, moving fairly silently and without much dialogue or expressiveness throughout them, he manages to come off as some bizarrely likable Gallic variant of Charles Bronson by way of Humphrey Bogart, and more than a bit of Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry, and we've done shows on all these men. If you can put aside his thin nasal tones, whatever else you can say about the guy, for good or bad, that voice is not exactly what you'd associate with an action hero or leading man, per se. An older, slightly bow-legged man with a somewhat odd visage, he manages to come off as believably tough yet a bit world-weary with a hint of good humor bubbling out beneath a random intervals, like the bomb sequence in a professional. In the same school of thought that later gave us Jean Renault, but with more audience identification and core likability. Why pull a trigger when you can just dial a number? Largely unknown outside of France, but domestically celebrated enough to name an award after him, Jacques Deray directs Belmondo in one of his later crime films, this time a far more formulaic Dirty Harry-style policier. This time it's scored by none other than Ennio Morricone, though more akin to his late-career schmaltzy ones than the memorable, melodic, and lushly experimental 60s and 70s scores with dozens of jolly crime films and such. There's enough funky bass and such to mark it as both kin to his superior early work and the 70s policier per se, but I still basically prefer Michel Colombier's score to Le Professionnel. This is not necessarily the sort of work that Marconi is famed for, but it's still good. Too bad about Janine, she had a nice ass. Beaumondo is a narco-beat cop a la Miami Vice without the non-dope vice aspects. 
After he pulls that Boston Tea Party on perennial baddie Henry Silver's incoming heroin shipment, he winds up framed for the murder of a longtime informant and sent out to the sticks. You've seen this all a dozen times before in all this Maurizio Merrily, Franco Nero, and Tomas Milian Policio Teschi discussed on our show in that genre. What do you make of, local police official? Schmuck, corrupt, or puppet? While busted down to more mundane duties, he and a former vice cop also set up and transferred for messing with Silva. In his case, they made it look like he was taking bribes. Team up to defy officialdom and nail another Silva shipment coming in from Istanbul. And what do you guys have to say? Shitting in your pants? Some of the better moments include when he sticks one of the drug mule's heads in a pole chain toilet and flushes, or when he gives an abusive troll of a cop at a taste of his own methods when, quote, questioning the stunning Maria Carlos Sotomayor, who later comes to a surprisingly palatial and decadent place to reward him for it. What's crazy is selling dopes to kids just so a few dirty old men can pay for a 12-year-old hooker. You have an age preference for hookers? Unlike the simplistic quips of Schwarzenegger, Stallone, or the mentally challenged Eastwood, all of whom we dedicated entire shows to, Bomondo is filled with hilariously nasty, smart-ass one-liners here. For all the relative silence of La Pajure or Le Professionnel, here he's 100% wise-ass vice cop in the lighter-hearted 80s mold. The whole thing is pretty slight. It's more notable for its laid-back French pacing and smoking hot ladies than either of its predecessors. But how can you not enjoy a film where Bomondo walks past a hot Asian hooker who blurts out, too bad, I'd have given him a free one, immediately walk into a leather bar where he gets cruised, blurts out to the bartender, then again, I'm in a gay mood, give me a strawberry soda, and, it, <laughs> and tells a big bruiser who wants to fight, ladies first? It ain't art, but it's a lot more fun than it deserves to be. I enjoyed this one. What was your take? Oh, I enjoyed the hell out of it. And it showed that Belmondo was uh, willing to play around with his own... Uh, his image. His own image, yeah. His own uh, history. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's a fun movie. I, any movie that has Henry Silva, of course, as a, a villain in Chechi Cairo, who for a brief moment was the, the thing in films internationally. It's a... Not a great film, but it's certainly entertaining. I actually have this fucking poster. You know, French movie posters. If you guys go look at the Marginal, Belmondo film poster, they're French movie posters are big. It's like 48 inches by 52. Wow. Or 63. And I've been trying to sell it occasionally, but like nobody's like, it's too big. <laughs> yeah, it's too big. Like, who wants a poster like that? I have a one for Delon, uh, Parole and Flick. Uh, which is a really good Delon uh, crime film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not to be confused with Melville's and Flick. Yeah, not to be confused with Melville's and Flick. Yeah. For the Skin of a Cop. Mm-hmm. That's what that one translates to. And that was Anne Perilot is, is in that one. From the Fun so, Nikita, yeah. yeah and the, Innocent Blood, <laughs> the original movie. Innocent Blood. <laughs> and so uh, that's a, it's another huge fucking poster. Thing is, though, when these things are folded, they start to crack. Yes. You know, this is That's why I roll mine. I still have ones from, like, you know, 1980 and stuff that my father brought home from working on, uh, I think it was at Sam's Goodies they were renovating. And I have all these things, like, you know, Prince Controversy and Mary Faithful Broken English. Very few are rolled for me because there's just enough space. So most are folded. And because they came to me folded. Mm -hmm. And if they come to you folded, you can't roll them. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so you got that. No, uh, I, I like the marginal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoy the hell out of it. Yeah, and that was kind of the case with pretty much everything tonight. Even, well, not so much breathless, but pretty much everyone, uh, even if we knocked it a bit, like, you know, the Sicilian clan, 
these are all really good. And it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, we haven't done a show on genre film for a bit. We'd always been doing character actors and things like sure. that. And Yeah, we did that one where we did the films of Philip Marlowe, the character. But basically, that's where we've been going in the last couple of years. And I was just like, you know, these are all kind of related. But it's not like we can just do a Rene Clement show. or We could have done a Melville show. But, you know, not just a Belmondo show. Or a Belmondo. Yeah, or a Lentalon or, you know, whatever. Oh, they, they all kind of fit together. And I was like, you know... I really enjoyed the hell out of these. I went on a kick recently. I was like, you know, why don't we do a show on this? <laughs> and that's why it we worked. did this. It yeah. worked. It worked. So uh, anything else you want to say? Or? No, no. Thanks for listening as always. Yeah. We always appreciate your... Uh, your patronage. <laughs> your patronage. Throw us some money. <laughs> so thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoy a little drawing room chat on French crime cinema. Next time, we'll be talking Cary Grant. Yes. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1, and of course we're on Podbean, uh, thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. We're on iTunes, you can look us up under Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast, but if you're particular, it's ID 5534020044. We're also on Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, it's, there's a whole bunch of places, Stitcher, and wherever you can find your favorite podcast, just look us up under Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast, and you'll have access to our over 100, and God knows by this point, 110 115 shows plus all the Third Eye Cinema podcast as separate from the website itself but yes there's, there's a lot of material there so if you enjoy this stuff yeah. go ahead and dig back and enjoy thank you for listening yes okay that's a good show alright all right. take care at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. 
This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the Katie, the career, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television. 
right here on the weird seats inside the gold mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Hello. Hello. How you doing today? <laughs> Uh-oh. Sounds good. Yeah, I bought some paint to paint the interior of the bathroom. You know, not the tiles, of course. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> paint the tiles. <laughs> Yeah, not the tiles. <laughs> but I, I did the interior door and the cabinet. I just have to do take the curtains off, do around that. I do mm-hmm. that another time. But there was a mirror on the door, which I removed, and it had four screw holes. But when I would go to put it back up, it just didn't match. I'm like, come on. <laughs> and then the wood frame snapped. Oh, nice. I caught it. So what are you going to do? Well, I had to throw out the mirror. Because uh... the wood frame shot. Yeah. But luckily, it didn't break. <laughs> Make very small favors. Yeah, uh, she'll come home and like, where's the mirror? <laughs> Why did you have to do that? You know, like, uh. <laughs> no, you didn't want to paint it. I guess you could have put like tape around painter's tape or whatever the hell and covered it up, but still. No, it, it, the mirror had a very thin wood frame, and I guess it wasn't meant to be hung. Okay. But it was pretty sturdy when it was on there, so I said, well, this door really needs to be painted. It's like. It's discolored, you know. Right. Everything in there needs to be painted. It's been a couple of years. I'm not going to paint the apartment because there's too much shit on the wall. But <laughs> and that's not on me anyway. Right. But the bathroom I could do. But uh, yeah, I, I go to put the screws in, and one went in, and the others didn't match. And I'm like, this is way off. And I went to take the screw out, and then the wood frame just snapped. Yeah. Was, oh shit. Nice. I mean, because not only do you have lots of glass, you also have connotations <laughs> how do you feel well overall pretty good i mean like i said uh no pain at all from the operation or anything like that and uh we did see him again or at least saw his assistant and talked to him on the phone okay yeah i mean <laughs> it was crazy you know i went in there for the rotator cuff tear and they were playing it down like ah oh, it's just a partial tear you know whatever they, they do the usual thing where they give you the shots and they try to play it off like oh that's gonna fix something didn't do shit of course and Apparently, even though they did all the x-rays and the MRIs and whatever the hell else, they didn't see something that was in there. So it goes in there, and he's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, he's, well, okay. He says, yeah, I couldn't believe it. And the, the assistant was like, they're all like wide-eyed. like, yeah, I don't know how the hell you were going around this with this thing here. They dug in there and found this two centimeters, which, you know, in body terms is pretty fucking huge. Right. Two centimeter thing that, and I was like, what the hell is that? It's like, yeah, it's like a loose body or something, like a, almost like a bone fragment or something, but it builds up. I think they call it like an osteocyte, or some people call it that, she says. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, this fucking giant thing they found, they're buried inside the shoulder. So it's like every time I move something around, I would feel that, and that's what all that crackling creaking was, supposedly. Uh-huh. But... Yeah, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, like we figured, there was arthritis in there, and there was some inflammation, bursitis in there. Your your AC joint, apparently, there was, like, growths or whatever the hell. So every time I would reach up high, and this is true, because I remember this all the time. I remember it, yeah. It would rub against each other. So, you know, they shaved that down. They got rid of all his nose and all his crap. Ooh, he's, like, he's, he's like, yeah, everything in our arsenal we have to do to you. He's like, yeah, you know, that shoulder's really been through a hell of a lot. I'm like, yeah. But they were just amazed by this giant thing. They were actually, he took a picture. Apparently, but he didn't, he wasn't there, so they couldn't access it yet. Says so next time you come in, we'll show you. 
but uh, they did show me the video of them digging this thing out, discovering it, and pulling it out. And it's like, geez, it's like having a more than a pebble. It's like having a rock in the middle of your shoulder floating around. It's funny you mention that, getting you know, MRIs, X-rays, etc. prior, because mm-hmm. uh, I had a lot of this stuff done. You know, first with the sciatica, well, before mm-hmm. they discovered it was that, yeah. and then like a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, NYU, because I had this pain in my groin. I'm like, oh, please don't let it be another hernia, but though it didn't feel like one. Mm-hmm. And they they had this clinical term. They said, if you sit down a lot for your job, mm-hmm. and you're wearing pants with a belt. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know, you, you can get this thing and it's fatty tissue. Well, what happens to that? And so it goes away. There's nothing else but... I had to do a CAT scan for that. So I recently took another CAT scan for the, you know, and none of these people flying, which is annoying as fuck. Mm -hmm. When I fly, I set off the thing. Mm -hmm. And they they said, you know, would you like to go to a private room? I'm like, no, no, no. And it took me a while to figure out because they're always near my waistline. Yeah. They're always detecting metal. I said, you know what? I had two hernia operations. I said, one of them, they probably used metallic staples. Oh, and that's what it is? Yeah. Ah. <laughs> you have a letter? I said, These, that's like 10 years ago. I don't have a letter. <laughs> and, and not only that, they, it's in their files somewhere, you know. And, yeah. You know but, yeah, so with all these recent things, you know, just following up what you just you shared, you know, with all these recent things, they didn't find that either. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be nice if somebody else found that, although I don't want to have a bigger <laughs> just to remove that. Yeah, know? right, exactly. But, yeah, I mean, it was just crazy. I mean, it's funny because I always keep having people tell me, like, at the physical therapy, geez, you're tough. You're like, oh, yeah, you were, like, the most growth we've ever seen before the operation happened with people that walked in in the range of motion and what they were doing in terms of weight and everything else in the time that I was there to the end. Mm-hmm. It's like we've never seen anything like this, right? So they're going on about how tough I am. Then when I go to the hospital, right after the operation, they give you, like, this ball to squeeze with a brace. They look kind of like sticking in the brace. It says, here, try this out. And it's was, you know, doing it. no problem. And like, wow, you're strong. Okay, well, whatever. <laughs> so it's the same thing with the doctor. When it comes, like, Jesus, how are you going around with this thing in your shoulder all this time? I'm like, you know, what are you going to do? Like, <laughs> so I guess, you know, objectively, everybody's telling me I'm so tough and strong. Like, all right, well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> oh, oh, Francis Matthews. Yeah, because you posted some stuff on your page. That's right. I've been watching a lot of Paul Temple as part of this thing where I'm just up all night watching TV because I can't sleep laying down until, you know, until yesterday anyway when they took everything out. Yeah, so. the voice of uh, Captain Scarlet, too. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so, God, what is got to be, got to be, the, it was high up. So it had to be probably the last year they were at the Sheridan, which sounds about mm-hmm. right. Okay. Across from what's now MetLife. I don't even know if it's a Sheridan anymore. So he he was coming to the show to chill it. And I'm surprised at that. I, you know, probably back then I wouldn't even know who he was, but still. Well, no, you know, he's you know he's, he's got a lot of connections. You know, uh, Revenge of Frankenstein. Yes, he was in a couple of hammers, a, a bunch couple of hammers, and a couple of uh, you know the Captain Scarlet things big. You know, in, in certain circles. And so I asked the boss, I said, "Who brought him?" I did. I did. I arranged for him to come. So, wow. Mm-hmm. You want to interview him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he had no agent. He he dealt directly to the show guy, which is great. Back in those days, mm-hmm. these guys were like, so I saw him and I said, look, I would like to interview you. He said, my dear boy, <laughs> he said, uh, my time is really tight mm-hmm. and I'm leaving Sunday. 
I said, well, I also write for these three different magazines. One of them at the time, they were publishing Chiller Theater Magazine, which was quarterly. Right. So it was four times a year. And uh, pretty glossy, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes whatever they didn't pick up, I had sold somewhere else. Yeah. Which is smarter me. And uh, <laughs> he said, come up to my room. Here's my room. Mm -hmm. Come up about 530. I'm like, but the show's still on. He said, I'm taking a little break. I'm like, okay. <laughs> So I go over there, and he's such a nice Joe. It's just him. He didn't bring any significant others or friends or whatever. Like, you know, some, you know. Yeah. Later years, they traveled the Entourage, yeah. Entourage. He cracks open this bottle of scotch, which he probably <laughs> charged to the room. So I want you to drink with me. Ask me anything you want. I'll tell you, what a raconteur. Yeah. First of all, that voice. Yes. And he looked way back then you know so you know as i said 10 12 years ago yeah just you know i had these notes and he just had something to say about everything really you know and <laughs> so did you dig into the whole paul temple thing and how they pretty much wiped the entire series <laughs> well no i mentioned paul temple mm -hmm. and he says well everything was my dear boy you know reminded me so much like i'm sitting across from carrie you know <laughs> he used to do that a lot too it's like my dear boy <laughs> And, you know, we're all younger then, right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, a really super nice guy. So I mentioned, I said, you know, you're one of the very, very few actors who have such a distinct sounding accent and voice. Mm -hmm. So I know where you're going with this. <laughs> <laughs> he says, you're talking about the gentleman who sounds like me. <laughs> and that, that was funny because... Um, yeah, because Cary Grant is obviously older than him. Yeah. And and he said it was a blessing in disguise. They both came from the same area. Mm -hmm. And so he said when, when Cary Grant, Archibald, started out, he was instructed to, I guess he went to some kind of speech people, mm -hmm. to kind of lose that. That Cockney accent, yeah. A Cockney accent along with a bit, it's funny, it's a Cockney accent, but a bit of a, a hierarchical tinge to it so it sounds like a man of importance yeah you know? yeah and it, it, it's a very interesting thing so he said he he loved it he said because you know what i got a lot of voice work mm -hmm. because that they wanted somebody to sound like him <laughs> and he said he loved it he said he met him a couple of times and i said oh really uh anything memorable and he said no he was a nice fellow he said i i actually met him during his experimentation period <laughs> so yeah. you know like the lsd thing that's exactly yeah i was gonna bring it up i was like do i say anything like yeah <laughs> so but no yeah you know he, he enjoyed the captain scarlet thing he says it's very difficult to do that you know he goes as opposed to today where it's much different mm -hmm. back then oh they had to loop it yeah you're standing there in front of the thing and they just keep doing it over and over yeah oh right, yeah voice acting yeah mm -hmm. uh, but he's already doing that but yeah i guess about working with cushing avenger it's just an and he's like, have another drink. <laughs> <laughs> See, the thing about him is, I, I know, obviously, they do sound quite similar. But Grant, to me, and we'll be talking to him next time anyway, always sounded like, and he was, he admitted it, that he, it was very affected. It was a put-on thing that was, okay, I want to sound like myself. I don't want to be Archie Leach. I want to, you know, be this character, this whole life. And I've got to sound very important and, you know, posh. 
Whereas Francis Matthews, that, that just seemed very casual. It was like it, very it was almost casual. like it was his voice, you know. <laughs> and what Francis Matthews had told me about this was that Gary Grant actually sounded like that. Mm-hmm. Was forced to drop that as much as he could, mm-hmm. you know, when he did his earlier Hollywood features, right? And then went into a kind of combination of what he thought he sounded like and what people thought they would like him to sound like. Right. Exactly. I mean, Francis Matthews was was a super intelligent guy, and you know, he could drink like a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you you're sipping because you're the interviewer, mm-hmm. and your role is not to get toasted on the subject. <laughs> and and the guy, you know, he's he's a British gentleman of letters, you know, he's he he, he can fucking track. <laughs> great stories, great stories, and he was to this day. On, I tried to find on um, all the filmed ones, whether it was done by friends of mine or people associated with the show mm-hmm. or people I didn't know, but they posted it anyway and you put it on YouTube. I tried to find almost everything that was filmed, mm-hmm. but that was one that wasn't filmed. You know, mm-hmm. there's two guys sitting sitting in a hotel room, basically getting drunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. kind of like us. <laughs> having a great conversation. It was recorded, mm-hmm. of course, on audio tape. But, uh, yeah, that brought back a big memory. I'm like, you know, i got to see this Paul Temple. I haven't seen it in a very, very long time. Did he have any stories about George Sewell and the man there? Or uh, what's your name there, Ross Drinkwater? George Sewell, yeah, I brought up George Sewell. And he goes, there are some things I'm not going to put on the record. Let me just put it that way. So he goes, did you see this bottle before us? <laughs> well, there would be several bottles before us. I said, well, it sounds like you're putting it on the record. Ah, very, very not smart. I forgot. Whatever he said, intuitive or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're very intuitive. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, so he's telling me, like, when working with him, you know, Sewell would uh, really tip him back, you know? Mm-hmm. But that's, that's that t- it looks like it, too. Oh, know? yeah. No, like I said, he, he's believably tough, whether he's doing that or Special Branch or what. He's like, okay, yeah, I can buy this guy, you know, having underworld connections and being a little bit of muscle and intimidating people. He's, you know, especially as British guys go of that era. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Whereas some people like to put it on, like, yeah, okay, whatever, buddy. Well, yeah, it was interesting about the um, that show that he did. What, Special Branch? No, 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 the... Um... Paul Temple. Oh, Paul Temple, yeah. Yeah, because he did mention, you know, it was, it was based on a uh, oh, it was a like radio, a, Yeah, a radio. book series that was a radio series for like 20 or 30 years prior. Yeah. So there were a lot of people who were very much into that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when they did this, you know, he thought it would, would have been bigger. Mm-hmm. He actually said he thought it would have done bigger things for his career. Yeah. But he said there were too many loyal fans to the radio show that didn't like the 70s updating. I was going to say it was very mod, so yeah, they probably were. <laughs> yeah. 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 But then again, you know, a really, really nice guy. And uh, one of the most pleasurable times I had interviewing somebody, and here I am thinking in the back of my head, I hope I don't get in trouble because you invited me up here and <laughs> the show's still open. Mm-hmm. So technically, you should be on table signing shit. But I don't know. Maybe it was slow for him. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Like I but, said, uh, I mean, the name is not like somebody you think right away, oh, Francis Madison, who the hell is that? Unless you knew the shows, unless you knew some of the movies he was in, some of the hammer things. But, yeah. Oh, it was nice that they brought him some of the great uh, 
what was it, Fanex down out in Baltimore, Maryland? Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they were locked in with those hammer people. Hazel Court, Michael Ripper, mm-hmm. just a bunch of them. Uh, Val Guest, the director. I mean, those are names. It was actually funny because one of the things, I pulled out stuff that I knew was going to be long and relaxing. So, Paul Temple was one of them. I had, uh, I mentioned Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy and Smiley's People. And another one I watched was the Quatermass serials, the original ones from like the, the 50s and 60s. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen And I'm sitting there watching the, I think it was Quatermass in the Pit. And I was like, holy shit, Michael Ripper's in there. <laughs> You're not expecting it. It's like, okay. But yeah. Yeah, Michael Ripper was almost in everything. <laughs> he was for a while there. But I, I thought that was a little bit more later in the 60s, whereas this was more like, you know, the late 50s. Like, what the hell? Okay. It, it's almost like when you see uh, some of those old Edgar Wallace uh, things that they did, the short ones, the British ones. They were oh, like 47 minutes. They were like 61 minutes, 64 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you see like William Hartnell and stuff. And, and I think it was in Carry On, one or two of the Carry On films, too, the earlier ones. Like, what the hell? <laughs> you don't expect to see these people doing this stuff. Pat Troughton is everywhere. I can't tell you how many times I've run into him. Roger Delgado. Where did we see Delgado in? Oh, it was a Paul Temple, I think. Or the Zoo Gang, one or the other, or both. It's like, holy shit. These people just pop up a lot, which is, you know, why we wind up doing shows on them sometimes. I'm like, wow, I've seen a lot of stuff with these guys. <laughs> I was surprised, sort of related, I was surprised uh, Life of Mars, the British show, mm-hmm. which I mentioned a couple of times, is there's two original seasons and two others they try to continue it with a different lead but pretty much the same supporting cast mm-hmm. and i had no idea they were they were thinking of doing a revival and they were very close to that i just read this yesterday morning mm-hmm. and i was like wow really and then <laughs> they said they were very close and then they lost the funding uh. but i don't know like since i didn't know about this and i'm sure very few people did know about this that maybe enough people will see that they said how much you need mm-hmm. Maybe. No, honestly, the the Paul Temple thing, they were going to cancel it pretty early on, from what I understand, but the Germans that were backing it up right. kept it going, and apparently there were a lot more episodes floating around with German-only audio, which isn't going to help us, because you're not subtitled or anything, but, uh, you know, all these lost episodes of the BBC wiped, they're still floating around in Germany. <laughs> well, didn't that happen to the New Avengers, was primarily a Canadian production? With some German money, yes. I thought German it was, money, uh, both. season mm-hmm. two was primarily German money. Yes, but that wasn't, okay, I don't want to say it wasn't good, but compared to the first season, I was like, eh. Remember, they, they focused really heavy on the commies in that season. It was a lot drier and cheaper looking. Yeah. Whereas, or like, you know, uh, that kind of thing when we talked about Space 1999, you know, season two got taken over by, that might have been the Canadians as well. And it was like, yeah, you know, the budget really went downhill. It's kind of like, yeah, whatever, it's darker, it's cheaper, they aren't as good. But Paul Temple was like... I, don't, I hate to say it got better as it went on, because that's not necessarily true, but there was, there was some strong shit right from what survives from the first season to the fourth season. So, yeah. you know, the Germans are doing something right there. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, problem with the new Avengers, I mean, no one, no one, at this point, there's enough historical information about that, was that it was supposed to be Steed was the guy in the, in the, in the background, and, you know, right. Joanna and Garrett were supposed to be the new Avengers, you know? Yep. And it's just like you can't have, and I guess at that time, what were we talking, 73, 70, no, 74? Uh, it was a little later, 76 was when it came out, 77? Yeah, all right, 76, 77. And so Patrick McNeese still looks surprisingly well oh, yeah. and robust. And I guess enough people were, well, one of the problems in the U.S., that was on, this, they showed it at 1130 at 9 on CBS, yep. remember that? Yes, I do. And one of the problems with that, he's such a recognizable face and character, mm-hmm. is that I guess word got back that like, we want more Steve, mm-hmm. less, less of these other people. 
<laughs> the other thing is, there's a lot of problems. I mean, we talked about it anyway. Like how, I, I don't think it would have worked, but the original um, Blake from Blake 7 there, uh, Gareth Thomas, was yeah. also in the running for, he's looking at the final casting, and then they, he lost out, and he's always pissed off. like, yeah, they took another Gareth, but I don't think he would have worked. But do you remember that one episode talking about how they wanted Steed to be whatever, the lead again? How, and I thought that was really kind of weird, when they made it like Purdy was hot for Steed. <laughs> do you remember that? <laughs> Yeah, I was like, yeah. what? Uh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we talked that show in our... Uh, we did a show on the Avengers entirely. And, of course, we did one on... Uh, I mentioned Space 1999 before we did that with the Mission Impossible show. And I think we also did it with our British cult television show. We, we cover a lot of stuff in bits and pieces here and there, and then we get more in-depth. But, yeah, I mean, uh, that's a lot of what I've been watching. And, I, you know, because you're sitting here, and it's like... I got so many hours I can barely sleep at night, and I'm just sitting in this damn recliner or whatever the hell, trying not to move my arm or whatever. So I saw somebody say like several times over, it's like, you know what? I don't feel like anything else. Let me watch uh, Tinker Taylor again or part, you know, episode whatever the hell. Or you know, I, I saw the whole Paul Temple all the way through. Let me watch this one again. I like that one a lot. I like Karina a lot. I like the you know the games people play one a lot. Whatever. So <laughs> just seen it like two or three times over the last couple of weeks. I'm like yeah, you know, I'm really getting into this. You know, I liked it anyway. But Did you, do you own the Paul Temple? Oh yeah. Yeah, I've had it for years. It's just, see, we watch a lot of this stuff, all this ITV stuff, and it's not all ITV, but a hell of a lot of it is. Lou Grade had an amazing run of stuff back then. And we've been watching this stuff for, I don't know, 15 years or something like that, you know, whenever we, either on the weekends or during breakfast or whatever the hell. And, you know, instead of watching all the garbage that's out here or the bad news or shitty morning shows, that, that's what we watch while reading. So, but that one she never liked, probably because the first episode on there is that one, uh, Games People Play, which is very decadent <laughs> in not only necessarily in the good ways but also in the, like ooh that was kind of nasty way and that just does not work with somebody like her so oh yeah I, I, yeah well you, yeah right. right before we go to audio check you know my wife doesn't like anything to watch right right <laughs> she used to watch action movies and she only likes them when the heroine when the, the, the heroes a female heroine and I'm like you're getting tired of we watched what was the last one the mother Whoever that was, J-Lo? Oh, yeah, Jeff Lopez, right. Yeah. And so there's a Polish one. They rushed into production. Mm-hmm. It's very close to that and very similar to that. Oh, we watched this now, apparently. No, we didn't. It's in Polish. No, I like it. Midway through, she goes, switch to English. I'm like, yeah, but it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> no, it's a dumb version, you know? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we watched that. You know, and, we watch a lot of stuff like that, too, but it's not like, oh, I'm only going to watch it if the woman's the hero. Like, wow, that's kind of messed up. <laughs> No, no, she she really likes where the family's in peril. Like, she's like... Oh, jeez, it's a Liam lifetime. Neeson, <laughs> Liam Neeson and Gerard Butler are our favorites. Don't mm-hmm. ask. All right. I said, we went to all the stuff on them. Every, <laughs> except 300, and you're not going to like that one. Uh-huh, yeah. It's just bellows. <laughs> anyway, uh... I like both those guys, but we watched everything. And actually, some things I know we watched, she forgot, so we had, I had to watch them again. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> where am I getting? Oh, so, Sunday night, I'm really tired, really tired. Mm-hmm. And she goes, well, it's still light out. I know, it's 8 o'clock, it's light out. I'm tired, I have to, you know, do things. <laughs> I want to watch this 47 meters down on Netflix. Okay. Girls, teenagers, 80 soundtrack. It's a new movie, 80 soundtrack. Yeah. Or maybe it's a pseudo 80 soundtrack. And girls with clicks hate each other. You know, me, white girls, me, chicks. <laughs> and they're in Mexico. 
you don't see any Mexicans in the movie. Right. Pat Gad is, who is that guy? John Corbett. Okay. He's a professional diver and blah, 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 documentary filmmaker. And they hint early that there's, you know, so many feet below the ground, there's a tunnel with caves, and I found a shark's tooth. Okay, I know where this is going. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to lie in bed. I hear women screaming for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> So in the morning, she goes, that was so intense. I said, I know. I couldn't sleep. You had a blast. And they were <laughs> screaming. You hate these kind of movies. Yeah. When I want to watch these kind of movies, but the better ones. Yeah. You're like, no, I don't like horror. What the hell was that for two hours last night? <laughs> so It was like my grandfather tried to paint me like I was a freak. It's almost like how he wound up in our house for a couple of years. But he wound up living with us for like two years. It was horrible. Mm. And... <laughs> He used to come over when I was watching movies, whether it was by myself or with my buddies or whatever. And actually, one of the funny stories is when he walked in on Bloodsucking Freaks, and he's standing there, he's getting all excited by, like, Ralphus. He's like, oh, oh what's going on here? You know, because the girl's, like, have the tits out or whatever yeah, and, uh, then before they get murdered. And he's like, oh, what's going on? But he's, <laughs> he used to, like, try to paint me at, like, the dinner table like I was a freak. He's like, yeah, everything he watches, he's always got these girls screaming. He's like, <laughs> 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 watching all horror movies. What do you want? But, yeah. I mean, not even slashes necessarily like that. It was just, you know, anything. Because you're watching a Paul Nashy film and somebody screaming their head off or a Hammer film. So, yeah. <laughs> it made me think of oh, that. Oh, yeah. And, and the, another odd thing was, I'm like, you have to watch a show called Luther. It's really good. Mm-hmm. It's been on for five, six years. And those years, those those seasons have been separated by years. So it's been around for a while. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I watched them all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think I, she tried to. She wasn't interested. So she chose that the other night. Okay. I'm like, this is the feature film that just came out with this. It's about a serial killer. Mm-hmm. So right away, those are the things. You don't like these things right away. And because it was a big movie. Right. All of a sudden it changes, right? <laughs> the two and a half hour version of Luther with, uh, it was pretty intense too. She watched the whole fucking thing. <laughs> and I'm looking at the clock going, great, it's like 11 o'clock now. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. All right, let's check this audio and let me know. Okay. Do you have somebody, like, playing like, really bad music on your side? I keep hearing, like, a bass drum. <laughs> it's downstairs. Nah, that's it. Yeah, we know. It is what it is. <laughs> we had that problem here, as you know. Not right now, thank God. I know, yeah. All right, so uh, let's check this out and come back. I hear it, like, boom, boom. <laughs> it's kind of low right now. And it's not even rhythmic. It's like, boom, 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 boom. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> I can't complain because yesterday morning I went to throw out my garbage and I opened up my, my door to my apartment yeah. and there's a big bag to Lewis and wife. Enjoy. And it was like, cause she works in a restaurant. In yeah. Okay. And it was like a big thing, a chicken parm with homemade oh, nice. and a salad. Yeah. They're trying to butter you up. And yeah. What are you going to do? You can't say nothing bad about that. <laughs> I, I didn't see them till. About an hour ago, I heard the guy going, he's throwing out stuff. You know, they're weird, though. This, they're Mexican. Yeah. So instead, you know, he does a deep clean like you wouldn't believe, mm-hmm. right, in this apartment. What they do is they throw everything away, and they buy new shit. <laughs> and, like, wow. the ACs, like, late, it, when, when, it, when it started getting cool last year, he yeah. said, you're throwing your AC away. because you're going to buy another one. So... They were throwing out all the stuff. So you, you guys aren't moving. No, I'm just cleaning. You threw out all these nice rugs. Wow. And, and remnants, like for small areas. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what are you doing? 
I saw him go by Newman's. I'm like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> but here I am struggling. But then again, they work crazy hours mm-hmm. and when they work. Yeah. Oh, some people spend on different stuff. You know, they don't have a leisure time. They don't have any life. They're just like, kind of like, all right, well, this is what they get. Yeah. And they play good music. Yeah, I mean, at least, I mean, I can knock on wood. It's basically stopped over the last couple of months. But, you know, if, if they came down and brought us, like, a big thing of jerk chicken or something once in a while, like, well, all right, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. Well, you're, 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 oh, it's a chicken bun. Oh, <laughs> I don't even know if he's Jamaican. I'm just going. My wife said he had dreads like Wesley from uh, NXT Wrestling. <laughs> I've got these two things on Skype, and it said there's two calls and two chats. I only see you. Okay. Uh, maybe somebody was trying to uh, catfish me. I was going to say, it's one of those people from, like, uh, Eastern Europe or something. Like, oh, yes, I am Olga. Oh, I want to show you my tits. You know what I'm getting more regularly now? I sign on every two or three days. Mm-hmm. It's like some beautiful white chick. I'm like, yeah, right. I want to be your friend. Right. Set my friendship. I'm like, you go look at their page. All the friends are black guys <laughs> from like Guyana. Oh my god. You know why? Because she she got these idiots to like accept her friendship, you know? yeah. Or that's it's just a complete scam in the first place. It's some guy doing it and like putting a picture up with some naked girl or the hell. Yeah, I'll be friends with you, sure. Speaking of which, speaking of which, a friend of mine. Oh, the guy I told you, he went to see Grace Jones. He, Posted a lot of videos. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's a bit of a cheese in the working world. A lot of people know him. Mm-hmm. Nice guy. And he started sharing full Volvo pictures of these beautiful, well, I mean, complete sex pictures. <laughs> and, yeah, I don't want him to get mad at me, but like, are you really doing this? <laughs> but apparently he is. And he found he found this group. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff is anime, which makes sense. Some of the stuff is real people. I'm like, how? How is this getting through their filters? Uh-huh. <laughs> when I got friends to put a poster up, and because there's like one nipple, they get banned for a week. Yeah, you know? no, it's, it's crazy. There's stuff out there. There's like, I don't know, I guess they do those private groups or whatever that they just get mm-hmm. away with for a while. So I have no idea. People try to add me to those. I see uh, if you go to your messages and mm-hmm. you go to message request, mm-hmm. people try to add me to these private groups. And, I, and I, I open them up. I'm like, no, I'm deleting it. I'm leaving the group. I'm deleting the chat. Mm-hmm. Why would you even add me to this? Oh, yeah. They, they always trying to send you these chats and stuff. I'm like, no, I don't want to fucking chat. We don't even know you. Get out of here. <laughs> oh, these are like groups. With like and did you notice... Books. That they automatically drop you in Facebook? It's like, oh yeah, somebody invited you to this chat. I'm like, I don't, I don't want anything to do with this. Get out of here. Delete this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, you have to go in and unselect. Like, no, I don't want these. Yeah, yeah. People do that occasionally with music groups. And I'm like, no, I. Oh yeah, like, it's all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it's not just like, you know, weird I shit. like to join in my own free will. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? If I feel like doing something, like, oh yeah, let me go talk with a bunch of strangers about comic books or something. I'll do it in the damn public face group. I don't need to do it on a chat. Get out of here. <laughs> uh, test the audio, because this is going to be the longest show. Yes. Well, not as long as you think, but yes. Uh, so we'll check this out, and I'll be back in a minute. Okay. Yeah. 